0: Episode 12 here on Dallas War Room. I'm Eric Burdett. I'm actually here switching seats with Dallas Ramey.
1: Where is weird being on the other side.
0: Yeah, no kidding. We have actually the pleasure of interviewing him today about his life. Awesome.
1: So, oh, buckle
0: up. Yeah, it's going to be a good
1: one. One of the things that uh, I think is really cool about, about this is, you know, there's a couple different sayings out there I always liked. And one of them is, um, you don't, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I always like that, and the other thing I think is really important is, you know, for people to, you know, understand. I guess the, you know, the the, the genuinity, if you if that's even a word, of uh, of what we want to accomplish on War Room, and and you know, really, it just comes down to what what people go through, and everything that we teach is is stuff that you know we've gone through ourselves, and I think it's important that you know we. Kind of showcase jaylene's story and and we still are still yet to release that but i think you know once our people really truly know um you know where we've come from and and what we've done then i think it 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 makes a little bit of the shit that you say you know a lot more real to people when they understand that you really do understand what they go through so i've actually i'm actually prepared to go deeper here than i ever have even with anybody in our organizations, so it's going to be uh, interesting. And, and and I guess I hope to take of it is, you know, that people really kind of see that we were, I was, just like you know, a struggling person, just like anybody else was. And you know, I have the story of coming from the negative mindset, the ninety-eight percent mentality. I was the the definition of that to being able to um, you know now teach people how to get out of that. I think is pretty powerful.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah, we obviously, we appreciate you, you know, going into this today, so. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So, I guess we can get started off here, where were you born?
1: So, born in Edmonton, Alberta, and I grew up in a little town called Athabasca, which is about an hour and a half north of Edmonton. Uh, my parents grew up on a, or my parents lived on a little farm, uh, just kind of between Athabasca and Boyle. Oh, okay. That's a real place, Boyle. Really? Yes. Interesting. So, and yes. your parents together? Um, yeah, you know, they still are and always were. You know, we had a, a, a very, I don't know, I mean, really a, a very blessed, you know, upbringing in so many ways. Um, never saw mom and dad fight too much. You know, they they got along for, for the most part, which was, uh, you know, good. I mean, they didn't have any other more fights than I guess most couples do. Um, but yeah, no, definitely uh, not from a broken home in that aspect. Um I guess maybe felt like it sometimes dad worked, um, just suicidal hours, you know, around the clock. We rarely saw him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, mom worked for quite a long time, uh, as well. So right. we were, we were alone for a, a good chunk of it, but, yeah. uh, but no, they were together for sure. Yeah. That's good. And how many kids are in the family? Uh, well, <laughs> interesting <'cause it> was, <laughs> as you know, um, yeah. at, at, the time too, uh, me and, and Kyle and, uh, everybody in our organization knows Kyle and he's been in rainbow with me for quite a long time now another story for down the road but we uh discovered a new brother uh about three years ago so but up until that point there was two of us and yeah we grew up together on the farm for sure
0: yeah and you know give me some of your childhood how was it
1: um you know it was it was it was it was it was hard you know we we grew up um you know very poor and we were on a farm and and you know i remember early on we pretty much lived off the land like we were um butchering chickens and milking cows and you know I remember our milk and you know came right from the cow dad had a kind of a dairy system set up there not too big but uh, I think he had 10 or 12 uh, dairy cows he was milking and kind of towards the the end there uh, was just kind of he had a couple left just to kind of for our own our own stuff but I mean we we ate farm eggs and you know we butchered our chickens and we did uh, butchered pigs and we (laughs) butchered cows and It was, uh, you know, we had huge gardens and orchards and all kinds of stuff. So we were pretty much straight living off the land. So it was definitely, um, it was was definitely a a lifestyle that I'm blessed that I went through. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, it was tough. So yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a typical small town farming, you know, lifestyle. Um, dad was a a pretty hard man growing up. It's funny that people that, you know, know him now can't even comprehend how, you know, he was the way he was, but I mean, it was, um, He was tough and he was hard and, and, you know, he he was a hard worker and he he expected hard work. And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, we grew up with, you know, not much of anything. We were a one Christmas present a year type family. Mm -hmm. Uh, We never got a lot of gifts, got a lot of stuff. You know, we could played one sport a year, things like that. So it uh, it was a, definitely wasn't a a lavish lifestyle, that's for sure. Yeah. And what kind of financial influences did you have? Early on. You know what? I never had any, any positive financial influences, I guess. You know, really. Um, there's really up until Jaylene, there was really um, most of the money mentoring I had ever received was negative. I, I remember bill collectors calling all the time it was a constant thing. You know, it was it was never ending. And I mean, it was always like, don't answer the phone. And, and if you do, you know, tell them what oh, we're not home. And it was just I always remember people were just calling. Mm-hmm. people were calling and utilities were late or phone bill was late and whatever, you know, and and it was just always something, insurance. And dad, I think for a long time, you know, solely lived off the farm and he had a massive heart attack when I was seven, Kyle would have been four and damn near killed him and probably would have killed most men. And he, uh, you know, we were big into green and all kinds of stuff. And he uh, basically had gotten forced to kind of get out of all of that sell a lot of the land um and and he went straight into cattle which at the time was was decent money but there was it was a struggle you know most of the way through so for me growing up I just you the bills come in you pay them when you want and they call you and harass you for money and then you pay them when you pay them I mean that was just that was a normal thing for me and and yeah Kyle right we just assume that's how it goes so when it eventually happened to me it was no surprise right yeah
0: and how was relationship with your parents
1: me and my mom's relationship was good I think um for my father it was it was uh it was different i don't know i think maybe he he maybe panicked a little bit when i was born i was his first son or thought he <laughs> thought i was um that's another story though but uh you know it was it was interesting there's a lot of things early on and i mean obviously that i don't remember but just from hearing from my mom and my aunts and stuff that he never had a whole lot to do with me the first few years you know it was definitely you know and he again busy man always in the fields working but just never had that really kind of emotional connection And, uh, and, and we grew up and, and yeah, never seen him much. I mean, we feared him for sure. You know, he, we respected him and, you know, it was a typical, like, wait till your father gets home. And that was a scary thing, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, we didn't piss around too much. Um, but me and him never, all in all, honestly, never really had a strong relationship, um, ever up until two years ago. And I'm, I'm blessed for that, but it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely pretty cold when, when I was younger Um, my mom we I think got along pretty good when I was really young as I kind of got older and started kind of lashing out through I would say not the neglect but I guess the rejection or the the lack of I was always a very emotional kid um different than most guys for sure and emotions come in all kinds of different forms I don't necessarily mean I was crying all the time but I mean I had a temper and and when I got hurt I just swelled up into this just ball of rage and so when I started to kind of lash out over things you know early on um, my mom who was home we ended up fighting quite a bit and we went at it pretty hard for for quite a few years I wasn't an easy kid to to deal with and uh, they weren't they weren't easy parents either so Mm -hmm. it was uh, all in all I would say my relationship was better with my mother than it was with my father Um, but towards the whole way through it was definitely I would say it wasn't what I needed as a, as a child, but I don't expect them to really understand either for the, where they came from um, to know what I needed as a child. Yeah. Right. But it was, uh, it was cold for sure. It was a lot colder than, than I would have liked. Definitely. So,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of your you know favorite topics is schooling. Did you mm-hmm. graduate?
1: <laughs> no. Um, school and me and, and you know, never got along and, I hated it and still to the day one of the things that people misdiagnose is you know shit like ADHD and all this kind of crap and this these these bullshit labels that, that you know we just throw on people nowadays and and again not taking away from people who legit have ADHD and there's there, there that's a real thing. Um, you know, an ADD and stuff like that. But a lot of times it's a personality, you know, situation and we talk you know, teaching in, in our organization, we learned from Danny Johnson about gems. And, you know, one of the things with sapphires is, you know, when I was a part sapphire and that's just the, the attention span. Right. I cannot sit down. And for me sitting in a classroom all day, there's nothing worse on earth. Learning shit that I don't have any interest in. I can't focus. I can't stay there pace a lot walk around a lot i have to if i'm not engaged in something that i'm truly interested in i'm, I'm out and you know that gets misdiagnosed and in, in kids today but and, and i never was diagnosed with that and rightfully so because it was just more of a personality situation than it was anything but it wasn't good i hated every inch of it um, i had friends and i mean you know i remember kind of early on getting bullied a little bit didn't last too long when the temper rolled in pretty much uh, scared them off you know kind of started fighting back but um, I, you know, I remember just literally dreading every, every second of it. Um, we had a, holy shit, we had a two hour bus ride one way you know, from the farm into town. Um, I hated every inch of that. And yeah, I just, I wanted out of it as fast as I could. As I got older, I started skipping school. I started getting into a lot of trouble and, uh, you know, done some, some crazy things along the way. And yeah, eventually just got expelled, kind of mutually agreed with the school board that I shouldn't be there anymore and, and left. And that was it. And when I got out, I guess I could say, I just, I always knew that what I was learning there, I was never going to use in my life. I can say, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had some ideas, but I just knew damn well, I wasn't going to put any of this to, to work. And it's interesting because, and I mean, I think maybe we're in a little bit of a different world today. But never once came back to haunt me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never once done anything where I needed that grade twelve education or that diploma, and 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 you shouldn't because really it's all bullshit. There's there's nothing there that that helps you past grade four or five. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I was you know I was out. I was uh, grade eight education, left in a very dramatic fashion. Got in a fight with my teacher, urinated on his desk, and walked out. And it was a pretty epic moment. And. It, uh, yeah, it was uh, a pretty was, good story. It's an interesting story, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I was, uh, had to go to the washroom and he wouldn't let me and you know, we went back and forth for a while. And eventually I just said, if you don't let me go to the bathroom, I'm going to piss all over your desk. And he called my bullshit and
0: it was not bullshit.
1: It was not bullshit. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, that was, that was my last day of school. And, uh, and like I said, I, I just knew that this wasn't teaching me anything. And I, one of my first jobs out of school was uh, my parents when i got kicked out of school i got kicked out of the house my dad told me basically you need to go make money and do your thing i'd already been out of the house kicked out you know it was really hostile at that point fighting with my parents a lot and yeah i just for me i i went and got a job roofing i remember i learned more about math in 20 minutes on a roof than i ever did in all the years in school so i've always been more of a hands-on learning person than a book learning person for sure so
0: mm-hmm. do you think you would have survived longer in school if they would have you know, maybe known more about the way you're learning?
1: Yeah, I think 100%, right? I mean, it's it's generic 98% bullshit, right? I mean, they're just programming you to be a good little citizen. And, you know, I think in some weird way, I knew that early on. But yeah, I mean, I, I still believe today that if, if teaching actually, if people were there to actually, I mean, the teachers don't even know that they're not there to teach in so many ways, which is crazy, right? It's just like, it's a it's a system that's developed to to mind numb people. You know, no one who who's going through school and then pays to go to school i think you know we talked about that in you know, one of our more popular episodes we got a lot of feedback on you know the differences in colleges and schools and you really look at the whole entire system it's just a shit show it's just a joke yeah it's not teaching anything and you know people are always like oh why don't they teach you to pay your bills well they, they don't want you to right? right so for me it's like yeah if the teaching styles were different i mean there'd be a lot more success in the world but the the world doesn't you know only has room for so many successful people so they need the the rest to run around and do all their work for them so i think i maybe caught onto that you know even subconsciously early on and just got the hell out of there but yeah i couldn't i couldn't get through it with the styles and um you know there was some teachers that you know i connected with and and wanted to help me but yeah it was uh it was yeah it was just not it was not my place ever
0: yeah so you got out of school did you have any mentors or people that you know shaped you early on in your in your life
1: yeah. You know, in school early, I mean, I remember, and again, you know, understanding that I was a very emotional kid. I wasn't getting, well, I guess maybe the enough hugs or cuddles at home or whatever it was, but I was in a situation as a kid that I was searching for acceptance that I wasn't getting. And it was something that, you know, my programming, a lot of rejection, a lot of I was looking for maybe more emotional stuff from my father, who was a very unemotional man and just having that thing. So I was, you know, I was really, I remember as a kid, you know, having a lot of anger, a lot of rage, just searching for acceptance. I think when Kyle was born, it was a chance for my dad to, I think he kind of, it was a chance for him to maybe, you know, I think he saw it as his chance to be a better father, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but maybe forgetting the fact that I was still there right the whole way right so i i remember being an angry kid and and not having a lot of people believe in me not you know knowing and i remember uh, and a teacher of mine and, and probably the most without a doubt the most influential teacher um i ever had was a guy named brian the and and you know i still talked on facebook once in a while and you know i'll never forget i was in it was in grade four and i don't know why but i was a, i mean i was an amazing goalie in soccer i don't know why man like i could not get scored on. Like, it was just crazy like cat like reflexes crazy stuff and and you know I remember we were playing and you know all the time I just I used to just love soccer we'd play like four corner soccer in the gym and stuff like that and everybody I was the first guy I picked all the time and I just I was a net because you just couldn't score on me I remember like five balls coming to me at one time I'm just flopping around like a fish I was a skinny scrawny little kid and just stopping everything and I'll never forget um at the end of the year we got you know, everybody was getting awards for school and of course you know I, was, I never ever excelled in school ever I never got an A in my life like ever and I remember you were know, doing this awards and I'm sitting back just pissed off because it's like, I mean, just like bitter, right? Because it's like all these, you know, nerdy kids are going up there with their honors and I'm sitting here just like, yeah, whoop de doo And I remember um, all of a sudden I got called up for this thing and, and you know, my teacher gave me this, you know, this thing. And, and I don't remember exactly what it all said on it, but what I remember is he hand wrote on the bottom of this and, and Brian wrote, to the best grade four soccer goalie I've ever seen in my life, keep on smiling. And you know, it's something so stupid as that. And I don't think he ever knew that or probably doesn't and maybe never will, but I hung on to that. I mean, I still remember those words today. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how old you are in grade four, but you're not very damn old. And I remember I took that home and put that on my wall. And it stayed there forever, right? So it's um it's interesting where, you know, I remember Brian being a huge influence in my life as a teacher. And, you know, he was one of the guys that I would say that definitely did it right for sure. Aside from that, as I got a little bit older, I, uh, you know, I I got into a lot of shit as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was in trouble a lot and started to go pretty crazy and started doing a bunch of dumb stuff, started getting, you know, in trouble with the police and not anything like I didn't do anything really criminally wrong for me. It was just like stunting and partying and speeding and just partying, like never Robbing anybody or beating anybody up or nothing stupid like that. But just, I was that party kid in town that drove around town 15 hours a day and everyone was like, go home, like, you know, and and whatever, and just doing stupid shit. But I was always kind of in trouble for for drinking and being drunk in public and just all kinds of stupid shit. And I remember things really fell apart with my parents for a while. I was sleeping in my car for quite a long time. I remember sleeping. There was a, a period of my life where i left home and i remember kind of sleeping under some trees i remember sleeping in the bank lobby and trying to go to my grandma's house but my parents were like don't let him in and sometimes she would sometimes she wouldn't and i actually had a police officer noel sade and he was uh probably one of the biggest influences in my entire life um growing up he was a guy that always kind of just really knew how to connect with me and talked to me a lot and he just he was really good and he um you know, he was a he was a great person. And I remember him even just offering, you know, he's like, if you're ever screwed, like, come stay at, at my house. You know, I have a basement. Me and Michelle have a basement suite. You can stay down there once in a while, like if it's cold or you need a shower. And, and, he, and I never did ever take him up on it. But he was always it seemed like he was looking out for me. And there's actually even some weird times where he would pull me over the next day and he would know exactly what I was doing the night before. And it was almost like he was watching me but then almost just watching me to make sure I was okay, not necessarily watching me to get me in shit or anything like that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Right. And I really felt that he really cared and, and you know, he was ended up when I started getting my shit together, I was in a pretty serious car accident when I was younger and should have died. And I remember when I was getting my shit together and trying to turn my life around, which was hard in a small town where you were a little, you know, punk shithead for, for your whole life. Um, I remember, you know, him being a big part of, of me wanting to change. And he was a, a good mentor to me. And I'll never forget. We were, I was working at a restaurant at the time and he, uh, he came in and, you know, we used to just sit there and bullshit all the time and a lot of respect for the guy. We joke around and bug each other. And I remember it was a slow day and I was managing this golf course restaurant and he came in and we we're sitting at the table and he went up and paid the bill. I took his money. And I remember he was walking out towards the door and it was quite a long way across the hall and he's walking out and, and, uh, It was weird. He just stopped all of a sudden. Right. And he um, just stopped right in the doorway, turned around, looked at me and he goes, hey, Dal. And I'm like, yeah, what's up, Noel? He's like, you take care of yourself. I'm like, yeah, for sure, man. And he walked out and it actually turned out that was the last time I ever saw him. He was actually killed in a car accident a couple of days later, um, driving up to Slave Lake. And for whatever happened in that moment that made him stop and say that to me it's almost like in some weird way you know it was just his way of saying goodbye right so you know it hit me pretty hard and and he was uh, an amazing guy and you know we just need more people like that you know nowadays and and stuff and so he was probably without a doubt the biggest influence in my entire life at that point point. And, you know, aside from that, I mean, I I used to have this thing when I was in elementary school and stuff. I would like torment bus drivers. I don't know. It was just a thing. Like, I would just, I was the kid that tried to get the bus drivers to quit. Right. And every time we'd have a substitute bus driver, I was the one who uh, would just try to make their lives hell. So they would quit. I don't know. It was just an asshole. Right. But um, it is what it is. And I remember we had this, I remember the first day, and I was a Pittsburgh Penguins hockey fan since I was like four years old right mm-hmm. and my first ever card hockey card was a mario lemieux card and i asked my dad who that was and he goes that guy's an asshole so i loved him ever since and that's kind of the kid i was too right so went against what everybody said and had to do something different the whole time but um i used to have this pittsburgh penguins hat i wore all the time and i remember i walked onto the school bus and there's a new bus driver and i was just like oh yeah we got a new bus driver and his name was gill gill williams and I think this guy knew because he right through me and see the shit that I was. And you know, what the first thing he said to me, he's like, nice hat. Pittsburgh sucks. <laughs> and I'm like, pardon? So I start arguing hockey with this guy. Well, next thing you know, before I even realized what the hell was going on, I'm best friends with this guy.
0: Right? Well, I
1: would get on the bus. I'd sit in the front seat on purpose and we would just talk hockey all the way to town. Yeah, You know, and it was just a proof of this as a person who knew, like, you know, like we talk about with through gems and different things is like he saw right through me mm-hmm. and he knew just how to connect with me. And he was the only bus driver, I think, I, other than our regular bus driver that I didn't really, well, even him, I tormented, but he was really the only one that I ever, you know, really did. And I remember just... Talking with Gil and going through this, it was just such a powerful thing. And again, he was another person who was just a, a, a huge influence on me and made me want to be a better person and a nicer person and stuff like that early on, right? So it was. Uh, it has
0: to be a huge influence because a bus driver, remembering their name, that's huge. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I haven't been out of school for very long and I don't know any of my bus drivers' yeah. names. So mm-hmm. that's crazy. Yeah. So
1: I mean, I think I would say that those were, I mean, early on would be, you know, Brian, our, our phys ed teacher, and, and Gil were my two biggest. Influences and supporters early on, and then
0: definitely um
1: Noel after that for sure.
0: Wow! And what about like your, you know, your core group of friends? Did you have any, or were a big group of friends, small? What were they like? You know what? Yeah,
1: we were that group that kind of we were that like middle group that got along with everybody kind of thing, right? We yeah. we didn't have I mean we didn't really have a place I guess for say you know I mean I grew up in a very like clicky place. Athabasca was a very rough town and. You know, you had, your, you had your jocks and you had, you know, your preppies and you had all of those, I mean, it was like just classic stereotypes and we were kind of that group that just kind of were a little bit of everything and, and got along with everybody and, you know, it was the same kind of thing as, I mean, I, early on, I, I never was able to stand bullying and I, I still can't and <laughs> never could, so I like, I like standing up to bullies, but, uh, but yeah, we never weren't the kids that were bugging the kids and we we just kind of kept our noses clean but yeah we had a pretty big group of friends you know and um, actually growing up most of my friends were actually girls and you know I had a few guy friends but we would just go and and I think it was probably because I was more of that emotional type of a person like a lot of guys can't have girl talk and I was right in there with it you know what I mean Mm -hmm. And it was just like I could just talk and talk and talk and I think in a lot of ways emotionally I connected more with females than I ever did with males and I don't know if that was anything to do with you know, my situation with my mom and dad or not or whatever, but we had a lot of friends and, you know, my best friends were, were guys and, 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 you know, some girls, but I mean, we had a, a large group of, and it was a strong core. It was good for a long time. And then shit happens. And, and we had a situation where it all kind of fell apart one day and I don't really a hundred percent remember all of it, but basically some Shit went down, and I was the fall guy, and it pretty much collapsed all of that. So it was uh, it was pretty much game over after that. But I don't uh, really have any friends today that I've still even connected with from back then. When I moved out of town, it was pretty much severed it all right there. And uh, I remember growing up, I mean, it was a big support base, lots of good friends. You know, we had a lot of fun. We partied like crazy every night, and we just always had fun. We were just a group that kind of got along with everybody and, and had a good time,
0: for sure. Mm. So. And what was your, what was your uh, first job?
1: You know what? Um, <laughs> it was interesting. Like, I, I kind of almost went backwards in life when I first started. My first job, basically, my best friend, Leah, her, her and her parents lived about a mile and a half away from our house. It was like our, the farmer, you know, we had one neighbor that was about a mile away, another about a mile and a half. And after that, you had to go about five miles before you found a house. And so I remember um, Joe, he worked for uh, a, a paving company. And up in Athabasca, there's a mill called Alpac. It's Alberta Pacific Forest Industries, or I see like what it used to be called anyway, if it's not now. And uh, there's just a pulp and paper mill, and they just built it. And, and uh, this company had done um, some you know, road work and stuff like that. So I had pissed around with some little jobs and things like that from time to time. But really, it was, um, I think it's my first steady job. And I would get a ride in with Joe every day, and we got along really well. And uh, yeah, I worked with them for a little while. And I mean, you know, it was it was in a huge party phase for me. And I uh, yeah, it was (laughs) I mean, back then, I guess it was, you know, definitely a lot more tolerable. But I mean, you would just we would party till four in the morning and go to work. So but yeah, I I worked on uh, a paving crew, you know, tarring highways and things like that. And that was one of my very first like real full kind of time, not pissing around helping out here in their jobs. But um, I don't know. I worked there for. I guess off and on and had other jobs, but I, I guess I worked there for probably, you know, six or eight months in total and then um I don't think I've ever I don't think I ever got fired from a job one time, but I think I just got tired of it and went on to something else. I spent a lot of time, you know, when I got bored with a job I would pack up and move somewhere else and just go to a different place, right? So I always kinda had to keep everything fresh and exciting. If I got bored, I just stopped going, right? So <laughs> Yeah,
0: and in work did you have like any mentors early on or any way that influenced you
1: yeah you know what Um, honestly the, the biggest work mentor um, up until Rainbow I ever had was uh, a guy named Al in, in Athabasca Al Zahar and, and you know still talk to him today too and it was funny because I was working for a roofing company and I'd worked for a couple of years and I remember I had an accident and I remember I was uh, we were just standing on the scaffolding I remember kind of tapping down the tar paper stapling it down and then i just remember waking up in the hospital and it was just the craziest thing in the whole world i don't remember i literally remember just going you know tapping it down down and then i'm in the hospital i'm just like like it was just weird it's like the whole house disappeared. and i'm in a hospital it was just the craziest thing and, and i'm glad i i blacked out for it but uh our scaffolding fell we fell about 30 feet and uh a couple wow. guys, yeah it was a long way um knocked me out cold broke my wrist shattered it and i had a I had a bunch of, uh, you know, other people working there that, you know, got pretty hurt and stuff. And I was just out cold and didn't really come to into the hospital. And I remember when I came to uh, my boss, Dale, who was a- an amazing guy. And, and he, uh, he was sitting there right there with the WCB papers for me. Felt so bad. And he's like, sign here and we'll make sure you're making money. And I didn't even know what the hell WCB was. Never heard of it before. And they're telling me that, like, you know, I don't have to go to work and I can still get paid. And that was just a really weird concept to me. And it was something, you know, really interesting where I think I I realized early on that I was different. I remember getting my first WCB paycheck and I mean, they pay you like 90% of your wages. And I think I got like 375 bucks for that two weeks, which I mean, back then is a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, I was making, I remember making 500 bucks in two weeks, that was a big deal. Right. And I was making 10 bucks an hour roof and just thinking I was raking it in. Right. Right. So I got this paycheck and and I remember looking at this check in my name that I didn't earn. And I honestly, Eric, can remember feeling so guilty, like guilty for cashing this check. Now, I didn't want to cash it. I had to to pay rent. I didn't really have a choice. But I remember calling WCBs and I remember telling them, do I have to take this money? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, like, I can probably work like I can do a different job. And like, I got a cast on, I have a plaster cast on. And they're like, well, yeah, of course. If you can find someone that will hire you, then by all means. I'm like, okay, because I don't want another check from you guys. Like, I'm not a charity case. I don't need to sit here and get free. Like, I can figure this out. I can work, mm-hmm. right? So I started applying for jobs. Now you imagine, A, my punk ass reputation in town, walking around with a broken arm into places trying to get work. Nobody's hired me. And I'm applying everywhere. I'm I'm applying for the gas pumper job. I'm applying for the custodian at the high school. I'm applying for all of it. It doesn't matter to me. Works work. Right. All works honorable. So that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for. And uh, what happens is we get to I get this ad in the paper for a dishwasher at Athabasca University in the kitchen. And I'm like, I can wash dishes. So I go up, I apply, I call the guy and he's like, yeah, come and see me for an interview. So I go up there, I go up there and walk in there and he, and, Al, and it was Al who was, you know, who I was calling, he was running the kitchen then, and he looks down at my arm and he goes, you want to wash dishes? And I'm like, yep. He's like, you have a cast on your arm. I'm like, yep. He's like, you can't get that wet. I'm like, nope. <laughs> he's like, how are you going to wash dishes? I'm like, I don't care. I'll put it in a bag. I'll tape it up, like whatever I have to do. And I am pretty sure Al hired me only to watch this shit show go down. And you know what? I wrapped that thing in a in a garbage bag and I duct taped the shit out of it so no water could get in there. And I washed them damn dishes in that restaurant better, faster, harder than anybody he'd ever seen. And I just went to town on it. And, you know, I was happy because I felt like I was earning it. And I never did take another WCB check. And, and to the day, I've never taken an unemployment check or anything in my entire life, right? So to me, it's like you know, I, I just feel guilty taking money I haven't earned. And that was, that was my thing. So Al and, and me formed a pretty up and down relationship, but a, a, a one that meant a lot to me in the long run. And he really gave me my chance to, I always kind of wanted to, I always enjoyed cooking. I was joking around with my mom. She couldn't cook with her shit. Um, so I had to learn how to, my dad was a very plain, like he's the guy who likes his steak burnt to a crisp no spices you know mom would make a big pot of macaroni like a big pot of elbow macaroni and have one processed cheese slice in this big bowl of macaroni and we would eat that like and i remember going into the cupboard going like putting spices on shit and stuff i'm like food can't taste like this so i would just put all this stuff on so I started kind of understanding early on kind of what would make things taste better and stuff like that. So, mom would make some pot of plain shit and I would go and try to doctor it up to make it taste normal, right? So, I had an interest in it. And my dad's mom, my grandma, she had a, she worked as a line cook in a restaurant. And I always thought that'd be super cool. So, I had this like kind of passion, I guess I'd say, to cook. And early on, um, so when I went with Al, and he kind of really was the one who formed that in me and taught me you know, how to cook. He taught me restaurants. He taught me everything, you know, I ever knew about a restaurant and catering and things like that. And again, I was a hostile punk little kid and, you know, he was a, a guy who didn't take too much shit and, you know, we uh, butted heads a lot. And I don't know how many times he'd fire me. I'd come back, I'd quit, come back and we'd make it work and kind of always had this kind of silent father son kind of a relationship. And I think at the time I didn't really, I mean, as kids probably do. I didn't realize what his influence meant to me, but definitely down the road, it was something that, you know, I really look back on and and realized kind of the role he had played in, in my future for sure. Right. So he was probably the biggest work mentor I had really ever had up until that point and and taught me a lot. And, you know, I ended up spending years in that, in that industry before, uh, before getting out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. And even today, I mean, I love, smoking food and cooking food and, and really a part of that all stems back from, from him and, you know, doing barbecues and a lot of stuff with him. So, you know, well, I, I always appreciated that. Thank you, Al. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause we yeah. love eating it. So yeah. it works out good. There you go. Yeah. Um,
0: what, When did you, uh, when did you move on your own? Oh boy. Um, you know, like I said, I was, I
1: was, um, I left home quite a few times. I ran away from home a few times. I got kicked out of homes a few times, you know, again, I can remember being I was young as 14, 15 and kind of um, sleeping under a tree by my grandma's place and things and, and just being a really pissed off, angry kid. And uh, you know, it was off and on. And I remember like, like if you can imagine like the diviest shithole apartment building that you could ever imagine, um, there was this place downtown in Athabasca. And it was that. It was like a s- square building that had like four units upstairs, four units on the main floor. And I think it might have had four in the basement or something. And it was just a shithole. And I remember did have the bed on the wall? It didn't, but oh. it should It really should have um, <laughs> because it was it. And, you know, no air conditioning, no nothing. I mean, I remember in the summertime just cooking that thing when the windows open. And it was right by the back alley of this bar and right by a convenience store. And, uh, and I remember my cousin helped me. He signed for the place for me. And so I remember living there, you know, off and on, you know, sixteen, seventeen, kind of thing. But, you know, I would say I was kind of a little of a gypsy from fourteen, fifteen on. And then, really I think when I 15 to 16 is when I started again lived in my car for a summer until we wrote that off and and then yeah I mean I, I think I was about 16 when I kind of had my first place that was mine but wasn't mine kind of thing and it was just a party shack you know people running through it constantly kind of thing right so mm-hmm. but but yeah I was I was always kind of independent and I pretty early I, I I really I look back and I appreciated the farm now and I always will and I'm, I'm so blessed to grow up that way um but at the time I I hated it I can't stand being bored. I can't stand having a th- And I was just, it's you know, being that far away from civilization and disconnected from people was not my thing. And I was like a people person stuck around no people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I used to just harass and torment the out of Kyle and, you know, poor little bastard. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wanted out early and, and I did whatever I could to get the hell out of there as many times as I could. So,
0: wow. Yeah. And then you got married and had a son. Yeah, um, that was interesting, yeah, we had... uh that was in Athabasca still?
1: Yeah, we were up there and, and uh, I was, you know, spent a lot of time with his family and, and a buddy of mine was dating this girl and, you know, in, in Thorhild, which was a little bit north of Athabasca where I grew up and, you know, went out there one time to drive him to see his girlfriend, met her and we, uh, I guess you can say, you know, hit it off pretty quick and, you know, it was interesting because I was already in a time in my life where I was kind of done, right? Um, I went through a pretty serious accident and, uh, you know, and I I guess I'll tell you about that a little bit. We were, you know, I I had a car and I was doing a lot of stupid shit with that car. (laughs) And uh, it got to a point where, I mean, I was, I was a kid where like literally the police would pull, like pull behind me and try to pull me over and I would speed away. And I don't remember, I remember being in high speed chases and all kinds of stupid shit. And like, they were looking for me and hunting me down. And, and I was just that cocky kid. I'd be the kid, you know, giving them the finger out the window, laughing at them. Like it was just a, like, it was just, it was, it was bizarre. It's almost like from a movie, you know, you think about it but I mean, it was also different times back then. Yeah. But yeah, I was just, I just thought everything was a big joke and I didn't really care about much. And I just partied. And I think when I got off the farm, I just went batshit crazy and, and just kind of got it all out of my system. And for a couple of years, we just went pretty hard. But this car, I remember it was um, August and summer of 97. And it was just the greatest summer of my life. Like it was just insane. Like it's one of those summers that you never forget and just all the you know it was just parties and epic shit and it was just it was cool and we just did the stupidest craziest thing and had the greatest time and you know it was it was nuts and I remember getting to a point where it's like I felt like I wanted to start to settle down you know I was I was kind of just you know done with the partying, done with everything I had a really shitty reputation I always remember being a good person deep down inside and I, I really I really did care what people thought about me and I wanted to do better in my life and start making something out of myself. I felt like I got in those couple of years. I got a lot of that shit out of my system. I, I you know, wanted to get my own, you know, my own solid place, something better. And just going through it all. And I remember I was going to go back to school. And uh, this was so I would have been going into, whatever. I don't know how old you are when you're. I guess I would have been what sixteen. And uh, I remember wanting to. Uh, the intention was to go back to school and try to make amends with the school board and you know I had these intentions to to get my life together and I remember being just hammered out of my complete mind and passed out in the backseat of my car and we're driving a friend of mine home and she lived just down this gravel road close to town we were only a few minutes away and um, my buddy Rick was driving the car and he uh, you know he was sober and everything we were driving and I don't know we were just cruising and he was going faster than he should have been and didn't really pay attention and we're flying on this gravel road and Angeline lived in the corner of this like 90 degree angle and her parents lived in the corner as a gravel road and we're flying down there. And I remember just thinking, you know, all of a sudden just being drunk out of my tree and thinking like, man, we're going fast. And I remember all of a sudden looking up and it was dark already. And I just seen like as fast as you can imagine this road ending and just going towards it. And I remember her yelling, you know, slow the F down. And I remember, you know, Rick looking up and I remember just thinking, don't hit the brakes. Well, he panicked and two-footed on the brakes and this car like we hit this di- we went straight through probably hit that thing at a buck sixty and we hit the ditch It, the you know those power pole. it has a little lines going down mm-hmm. we were high enough in the air where it ripped the mirrors off each side as we went through this thing Bounced, landed i remember the hood coming up over top of the car and i remember just seeing this headlights and i remember seeing these headlights turn and i seen trees and we smashed into these trees And, you know, I think I'm holding on to my case of beer or something stupid like that. And I remember, I actually remember um, going through the back windshield. I remember putting my hand over my eyes and going through the back windshield and I hit a tree and popped my collarbone out of socket and landed on my back in the bush. And I remember my car spinning around once or twice and the headlights kind of flashing me as it went around in circles. And then I literally remember like getting up and wondering like, what the hell just happened? I remember looking, I was in such shock and drunk. I remember looking over at my car and laughing. It was upside down in the trees. I'm like, that's not where it's supposed to be. And all of a sudden I stopped. I'm like, what am I doing? I look back and then my buddy, Andy, who was in the car, he's like, Dallas, I'm bleeding. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm bleeding too. We are walking around trying to make sure everyone's, you know, okay. And I remember going into the headlights and Andy had this massive chunk of glass sticking at the top of his head and his whole entire, view was just red with blood and I'm like "Holy oh, shit, you're bleeding and we went into Angelina's home and, and she walks in the house and she's like Rick flipped the car but we're home on time and it was just a weird thing and I remember passing out as soon as like the heat of the house hit me I just passed out and Angelina's dad worked for Super A Foods and he had the grocery van that has no seats in it so we were thrown in the back of this van and Jerry was driving us to the hospital and I remember rolling around in the back of this thing and that's when I realized I had glass sticking out of all sorts of parts of my body because I'm rolling around in this grocery van <laughs> and I can feel it and as we're walking in, people are like staring at us like like they see a ghost, right? So I didn't realize, you know, how bad a shape, you know, we were in or whatever. And gone to the hospital. And long story short, I mean they popped my collarbone back in the socket. I had police everywhere, you know, and it was kind of fitting because we had this conversation about being done with it all. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe in some way, if it didn't end the way it did, it probably never would have ended for me. Like I probably would have just continued to live that life, maybe in party. But when the car was gone. And I'm at the hospital and there was police everywhere. And by the time they popped my shoulder or collarbone back in the socket and started pulling the glass out of my face, and I had glass in my forehead and my cheeks and and actually where I put my hand over my eyes was just a white patch across my eyes of, and all the glass was in my arm. I still got these scars here and shit from it. And, uh, you know, probably saved my eyesight by doing that. And they pulled it all out. And I remember, um, I remember walking out of the um like walking into the kind of the lobby part of the hospital um after a couple hours and there's cops everywhere there was media up there even like the newspapers and shit and uh, i remember them and it was actually noel was there and it was before he passed away and i remember him saying i gotta make a phone call first you know and then you guys can have me and i remember calling my dad and or call my mom and dad and dad answered mom answered the phone and i said his dad there so she hands him the phone and i said i want you to know it's over and I rolled the car and it's gone. And he hung up. <laughs> didn't say a word, didn't say are you okay? Just just hung up the phone. And I'm like, hey, it probably deserved that. So I uh, went out and yeah, I mean faced the music, went to the police station, got through all my charges and all my shit and everything and and faced that down. So to say I was ready <laughs> to settle down was kind of an understatement. So when I had met um Aiden's mom, I think I was in this point where I just wanted to settle down. Um, She was somebody that was different than anybody I'd ever met. So at the time it was like, I guess, attractive in that way, you know, where I was like, this is someone that was unique and different from what I liked or usually liked. And, you know, so we pushed it pretty hard and we, and we rushed it and we moved in together quickly and, and, you know, it was just a, a really quick thing. And we got pregnant very early and, uh, yeah. And then we just basically went from, uh, just kind of built a house up and we went through a lot of financial shit and yeah you know got married young had aiden really young we wanted to be married when he was born so we got married really quick and i think within a year you know we had met each other you know within 12 months met each other were engaged had a kid got pregnant had the kids got married you know everything all within the first you know 10 months or a year so wow yeah happened pretty quick
0: no kidding and some pretty dramatic shit happened up far north what happened there
1: yeah you know it was um it was interesting we had a I got kind of screwed over a little bit and um we had a a quarter of land that was in my family for years and we wanted to move up on there and build a house and I, I actually had I was had these plans already and I had approval for a mortgage and everything before I actually met my ex and we had uh I, I was building this house and everything and had money and, and what basically happened is I I you know I had no credit I was young and the so banks wouldn't approve me for a mortgage. So I ended up kind of going through this loan shark. And what had basically happened was he offered me this, this loan for this money. And I told him what I needed and everything. And the interest rate was like, you know, eight or 9%. So it was high, but it wasn't like stupid, crazy high. But uh, I remember I got in this and, I, you know, so we built, we built a modular home and had a drug out there and put a basement on and all stuff. And I remember getting halfway through this and then calling the guy needing more money. And what he had done is he had offered me this uh, mortgage at, you know, 8%, but it was only for half the money. And now that I'm halfway through it, I have no money left. He's like, well, I'll lend you the the rest of it. And it was at like 46 or 47%. And at the time then there's, there's laws now that you can't go over 30%. Mm -hmm. Um, Those laws weren't in place in 98 or 99 or whatever it was. And by the time it was all said and done, I had no choice because I had, I'm half built this house. I have people I have to pay. So I took it. And uh, ended up basically having to pay $2,000 a month um, for this place at a time where rent was like 400 bucks a month. Wow. And so I got, I got screwed over pretty hard and I, I worked as much as I possibly can around the clock as hard as I could. Um, and eventually the inevitable thing, which I mean, it was set up to do was that uh, I was going to lose a place. So we ended up getting foreclosed on and uh, yeah, we lost it and it uh, screwed my credit pretty hard and caused a lot of drama in my family. <laughs> so the, the land had been in there for quite a long time. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a big mess. But right at that same time, we were going through BSE. And if people remember that from, you know, that would have been, I guess, right around 2002, I guess, and uh, 2003. And we had, uh, you know, my parents were strictly cattle farm. So the time that that was going down, everything was going down in the farm in general. And uh, we ended up Moving out of there, moving into town and, uh, you know, losing the place. And then it wasn't too long after that, uh, dad was basically forced to sell it as well. So we, had, uh, uh, a farm that was in my family for, you know, hundred years basically ended. Right. So it was, uh, it was a pretty crazy time for sure.
0: Yeah. no but, kidding. Uh,
1: lots of, uh, lots of wounding lessons learned in, uh, in all that for sure. So,
0: yeah. And you owned it up, you owned a restaurant up there? Yeah, it was interesting
1: after, uh, so yeah, I'd worked with Al off and on and worked for different places. And I was working for uh, another lady that named Joyce that she used to work with Al too. And I was working in Boyle with her. And it was funny. Yeah, we, She was going through her own financial things and wasn't getting paid on time and different things like that. And, you know, we had a pretty good relationship, but it was just, I ended up um, basically, I was actually managing an A&W when we lost the place, we got foreclosed on, or right after I think it was, I went to A&W, I don't remember. But uh, I remember I wanted to own my own restaurant forever. It was a goal of mine and I knew everything about line cooking I knew everything about cooking and I could, I could do all parts of that, but I didn't know anything on the business side of it. So I remember when AMW was gonna come into Athabasca and they were opening up on the hill and I remember thinking like here's an opportunity because we had no chain restaurants or anything in small town, right? And I remember thinking holy shit, here's an opportunity for me to like learn like kind of more of the business side of it. So I went and applied as a manager there and they hired me on as an assistant manager and you know i worked with nw for uh i don't know a year or so and and it was actually the only job that that i was ever really fully fired from and it was actually funny because i was set up pretty good it was um this i had a, this manager i think her name was shannon at the time and we got along really good and everything was good and she moved on to a different company and ANW brought in this other girl and it was actually funny i did a post about this uh a couple years ago on our facebook page but uh this lady came in and i won't say her name but She came in and uh, seemed really nice, and she had a boyfriend at the time that she wanted to get up here working as well. Um, He was assistant manager of another A&W, and it was the one that she came from. So she had intentions to get him to come up here, um, but for that to happen, she needed to have a position available. So she pretty much straight-ass sabotaged me to the point of basically didn't take a whole lot to get me worked up. And she got me worked up and, uh, you know, we got a little bit of an argument and she basically just flat out fired me and, uh, brought in her, her boyfriend to replace me. And this was right when, um, that's it sort what of, it's sort of been right before the the foreclosure because yeah, I remember, we, yeah, it was right before. Sorry. Because I remember, uh, we were pregnant at the time still. And I remember, you know, having a pregnant wife and, you know, weeks away from popping basically and, uh, getting fired. Right. So when I went to work for Joyce and Boyle was to fill in and then, you know, we ended up losing the place when I came to town. It was a blessing because AMW did teach me a lot of like, you know, inventories and different things like that. And a lot of the stuff I needed to go when I had just lost the the house. Um, I didn't have any money and, and I stopped working with Joyce. and I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. And, the restaurant that I worked for with Al was up for lease. Al had moved into more catering, had his own building, and, and the place that I'd worked in several times um, came up for lease. It was a huge building, pretty run down, but I'm like, you know, here's my opportunity to um to get in there. And so I had this intention to to lease this place and open up my own restaurant. The problem is I straight up had a dollar and thirty-one cents in my in my bank account. Holy. and that's what I had and I remember thinking how am I going to open a restaurant on a dollar and I remember thinking well hey you know if it can be done let's do it so I'm like I'm going to be the first guy to open a restaurant on a dollar and I went down and talked to the lady and, and everything the stars kind of all aligned in a way I guess if you can say that um the the guy who owned it the building, he. You know, would lease it out to anybody. And there was a lady in town um, named Sue, and she had a Chinese food restaurant in town. Well, she wanted to make sure that no other Chinese food restaurant, no competition for her, could move into town. So when this building became, when Al moved out of it, Sue went and leased it just to, so she could control who could come into it. So I went down and talked to Sue, and she was pretty desperate to get rid of this place. And I struck her a deal. I said, hey, if you let me come in, um, let me get set up and give me a month or two of free rent here, and and I'll I'll take it. And she was just happy that that it that it wasn't a, a Chinese food place going in, mm-hmm. and so we had to actually had to sign a thing that I wasn't going to make Chinese food, and uh, and yeah, she she needed to get rid of it, and it worked out good where she just let me have it, and uh, I got my first month or two of free of rent, and then I would just have to start paying her like on our third month open. So now I had a place. And so I did that on a dollar. Well, the place was run down. it needed some work. So I went across to the home hardware there and I opened up a charge account. They knew my family and stuff like that. So they let me open up this charge account. And I went and charged up all the lumber and wood and paint and things we needed. And we went in and we renovated the restaurant. And I had a really good reputation from working in the restaurants for as long as I did in town. And I knew Jimmy, who was our, our food rep for one of the big companies there. And so I called him up. I said, Jimmy, I got my own place. Come see me. So he came down and... Uh, the way it worked back then is you could put in a big order, but you would pay for it basically when it, you know, kind of showed up. So I put in this, you know, big, huge, you know, $8,000 order, which I mean, it was huge back then too. And I ordered all of our plates and all of our utensils and everything out of these guys and their first food order and everything all together. Um, I ordered the menu covers and stuff like that. We hand printed all of our menus, made everything up. I mean, we just everything. And you know, I went across to the liquor store because they had a lounge in there too. And, and you I know, ended up charging all the booze. And I literally opened up this entire place, renovated it, fixed it, everything. And I never spent that dollar. And we were open for business. And by the time all the bills came due, we were already making money. And I literally had this place. We were packed. Um, I had a really good reputation for cooking in town. You know, people were coming in and, and we were busy. You know, the other restaurants hated us. You know, we were taking business from them. We were just crushing it. We were full every day. You know, we were ringing in two, $3,000 a day, which, I mean, back then was crazy amounts of money. And we were paying. And we were paying all of our food and paying everything. We got the bills all paid off. And I literally opened up that entire place, restaurant, lounge, the whole nine, full-fledged kitchen, everything um, for nothing.
0: That's insane
1: on a dollar. So, and then um, yeah, I mean, I was young. I just opened up a bar in a town I grew up in, and uh, yeah, we we pretty much if you can find a place that was ever mismanaged, it would be that one. We would uh, just kind of decide to have a party, you know, midnight close the bar down everybody was being there drinking and you know i remember i don't know how many times we'd wake up in the next morning and the bar was gone so we have to go and buy and just people weren't paying and it's just you know we just really piss it away and as as good of things as we had there you know we had a, a really good thing we were always busy all the way through but just my lack of money management you know just drove the place into the ground and 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 i mean i wouldn't say drove into the ground but we definitely weren't you know making the money we should have been making like we should have been able to save quite a bit of money
0: and mm-hmm.
1: And then things started to happen with uh, with our landlord, and and he was kind of a cheap prick. And we, you know, things started to break down, like things that he was supposed to fix. We lost our hood fan one time. We lost the furnace one time, you know, and things that he was supposed to fix, and he would never fix them. And he knew we were busy. So he just kept telling me, well, if you want to stay open, you better fix it. And uh, one of our best customers was, was actually our lawyer. And as sad as he was to see us go, I took him my release one day, and I said, guy owes me $50,000. And he laughed. Sent the guy a letter, and and we ended up suing the landlord for fifty grand. He locked the building down. We booted it back open and went back in and got our shit out. And he ended up countersuing us for the same amount of money. And just because it was an old rundown building, I mean, there was no real proof of you know what was damaged before, what was ours, and everything like that. So we had uh, the place was falling apart. He refused to fix it and counters. He countersued us and. We had moved to Camaro's already to open up our restaurant there. That's so what kind of brought us to Camaro's. And I remember my lawyer just saying, Dallas, you're going to, but time, you'll win. But by the time you pay me, it's not going to be worth your time. Like, you're not going to come out of this ahead. And so we just settled, agreed to take our losses. And, and we left and moved to Camaro's and worked on opening the restaurant there. So so you opened up a, a restaurant in Camaro's? Yeah, we came down and um, Kyle was going to come down and help me set it up and then go back to the farm. He liked Camaro's um met a girl ended up staying and uh yeah we opened up a smaller place you know we went from seating 160 people to seating 40 a um, little place downtown in camrose and and we had uh we had basically gone uh through there and, and ended up there for a year and a half i guess for just about two years we had the restaurant there in camrose so. and
0: when you moved to camrose it made a pretty big impact i heard yeah we um we
1: moved to to camrose and it was right when i was talking about earlier about like when BSE hit Mm -hmm. And it was weird. We, we moved to town. We opened up the restaurant. We loved Camrose. We were looking at all places all over, all over Alberta and even into, to um, Saskatchewan a little bit. And we came to Camrose and I remember just picking up the the newspaper, the Camrose Canadian and looking at the crime page. And it was like the worst thing that happened in this town was someone got a window broken and I'm like, okay, we're home. You know, getting out of Athabasca was hard. Um, It was a really rough place. Um, as much as it was, a, it was a rough fun place growing up it uh when the oil and gas industry really grew and the, the heavy drugs moved in and it just wasn't a place I wanted to raise my kid anymore so uh, we moved out and figured cameras was a good spot and we loved it we opened everything up and at the same time you know BSC was going crazy and and dad was I mean shitty sent a bunch of cows to market and got a bill for the trucking and there was farmers committing suicide and I mean it was just a crazy crazy time and I remember laying in bed one night and I don't know I, like God just gave this to me and I remember I shot up in bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and I went I'm gonna barbecue longer than any man in history And I got out of bed and I went and I sat down at a table and I just started writing and I was just writing out five six pages of notes and shit And then I went back to bed And I woke up in the morning and I'm like it was all felt like a dream I'm like what the hell just happened and I went and looked and and I'm reading these pages and I basically mapped out these plans for doing this massive beef fundraiser to basically barbecue around the clock and try to set some kind of a world record for the longest barbecue. And at the time, there was a, um, a hockey game that was going on in Sherwood Park, which was close to us, and it was the world's longest hockey game when they were always raising money for cancer and different things like that. And and I'm thinking, well, shit, maybe we can barbecue around the clock 24-7 for however long. And so I got a hold of Guinness you know, World Records and figured out that what the record was and you know we had to record everything and go through it all and you know anything and, and you know we went into this thing and I mean I had intentions on raising five thousand bucks hopefully and just kind of putting it towards whatever I didn't really know what cause to do I just wanted to kind of create a place where you know we could bring awareness to what was going on in the in the cattle industry and you we invited all the premier we, you know Ralph Klein a man that I, I love and respect always have and I know he's Will, even though he's gone, but, uh, you know, I invited him to come down. I invited every politician, every MP, every MLA in the province to come down to this barbecue and just put it out everywhere. And it turns out that it was kind of just what the industry needed. And we wanted to raise 5000 bucks, and we ended up raising 50000 bucks. Wow and i remember at one time in my little tent we were making burgers and and calahoo meets up in calahoo they donated all the burgers to us and everything and you know this thing just blew up beyond comprehension and and i remember at one time the lineup was all the way down the block and around the corner and i remember walking down and counting and there was over a thousand people in line at one time downtown campus was just crammed and I mean, we, logistically, we were not set up for that. You know, we had the coffee and the drinks inside the tent with the barbecue. And there's old grandma Tildy trying to get the sugar in her coffee. And there's a thousand people in line. I'm like, oh my gosh. And, you know, but we got through it and we made this huge impact. And, and, you know, Ralph Klein had come down and he was campaigning during that one. I think I was the one who was campaigning. Yeah. And uh, he came down and I remember just having a, just a big old, basically a big old freaking Alberta beef, you know, roast beef sandwich in one hand and his middle finger in the other hand, and he was just fighting for his people and fighting for our beef industry. And there was a lot of kind of attacks from these rancher groups in Montana who were trying to keep our borders closed because they were making more money off it. And he was fighting them like crazy, and it was just this great big thing, and 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 it was just this amazing event. And so we had actually set a world record um, for the longest timed barbecue, and we went for um, eighty three hours straight around the clock, and it was about zero degrees and you know, I remember people bringing us down some rum and, you know, I remember people driving from all over the place. It was just incredible. The stories that people drove down, just heard we were doing it and, and it blew up all over media. And CFCW was in our restaurant right around the clock down near with the whole entire thing. And it was just this great, big, huge thing. And we ended up donating, I think it was around 43,000 bucks. And the money we use is we, cre- um, we basically purchased beef from slaughterhouses um, to free up capacity and then basically donated it all to food banks. And, uh, and we did that and then never intended on doing another one. And that was in November, I guess, of 2004, 2004. And, uh, in 2005, it was the centennial for Alberta and the Alberta beef producers were celebrating a hundred years of Alberta beef. And they actually called me up and said, would you do another barbecue And would you be the official like place for our 100 years of Alberta beef and our celebration? I went, Holy shit. Okay. And so I decided to do that. I said, okay, well, we're going to do another one. We're going to pump this high to make sure no one can ever beat it. So we're going to go to seven days. And I think it worked out to 144 hours or something like that. I don't remember quite offhand what it was, but uh, we're going to go around the clock for a week. I also had an idea to, um, because it was hundred years of Alberta beef I'm like well we got to do something big I'm like let's do a cattle drive let's run a bunch of cows right through downtown cameras and I remember going to the I I remember I found this you know farmer out by Viking and Gary store all he had the meat packing plan out there and he was just about crazy enough to help me with his plan and I got a hold of him I don't even quite remember how we met or where I got his number from but I said Gary I want to run a bunch of cows through town and I want you to do it He loved it. We went to the city council and um, Clarence Mastell was the mayor and cameras at the time. And, you know, I thought for sure they're going to shut this down. Like I just thought for sure. And, and, you know, he embraced it. He loved it. He got behind it and he supported us and he's like, let's do it. And he supported the barbecue the year before. And I remember he just, his eyes bugged out of his head when I told him I wanted to run all these cows through his town, but he let us do it. And then right before uh, we were about to do it, the Calgary, um, has the calgary stampede which is like one of the most famous rodeos anywhere and they used to run a bunch of mustangs down the deerfoot um, to celebrate the uh, you know the stampede and these cows i don't know if it's a calf row bridge or what it was but these horses sorry ended up getting spooked jumped over a bridge landed in the bow river and ended up a lot of them died and it was this great big thing all over the radio and media was all over it. And, you know, all the animal rights people were freaking out and everything. And they had actually, you know, basically said that they were going to shut down any kind of stuff like this. Okay, Well, this is in in basically in July in my events a couple of weeks from now. And so my insurance companies pulled on me, everybody bailed on me and we couldn't get insurance for it anymore. There was one company, Lloyd's of London, that insured me. I had to personally put five thousand dollars of my own money down and be personally liable for it. Uh, The first thing they wanted was a uh, six-foot cement wall down the entire (laughs) um, street, which obviously wasn't going to happen. They ended up going to a chain-link fence, which wasn't going to happen, and I finally convinced them just to let us do it with enough cowboys and and stuff. So we, uh, you know, UFA set up all kinds of corrals and pens for us, and we ran, you know, forty head of steers right through downtown Camrose. Um, right past our barbecue all the way around and, and had this huge celebration. We barbecued for 144 hours or whatever it was, 177 hours, I don't remember what it was. And, uh, and yeah, set this record. And then we, uh, yeah, it was huge. And we raised another $50,000 and sent that out. And uh, yeah, and then kind of went back to the restaurant. And then it was actually just uh, the next summer that we got so much demand to do a third one. And then we bit off a little bit more than we can chew. The downtown didn't want us down there anymore. Um, our event was overshadowing their events, I guess. So they actually um, started kind of fighting us back. And I'm like, hey, you don't want our business, see ya. You know, and that and that that event had put that you know that street on the map big time too. I mean, we were I, mean, I remember I did I did interviews in Japan. Like when those horses went over the bridge in Calgary, I was famous like we had, I had radio interviews from Japan, from like everywhere you get translators on the thing. Like I was the guy who's going to run cows through a town right after a bunch of horses died over a bridge. And it, it was crazy. So, you know, we brought a lot of attention to to that street and, and, you know, for whatever reason, people got bitter or whatever. And, you know, so we pulled out and went over the, to the Doug and Mullen cameras and Jesse was like, yeah, I'll take your event for sure. And you know, we went to 10 days and we did it and we got through it. But I mean, in 10 days, I mean, you know, we had the costs were too high. You know, it, it you know, we had a windstorm that came through and crushed all our stuff. So, you know, through that whole entire event, um, you know, we did a lot of sales. Didn't, you know, didn't make a, a whole bunch of money. But, you know, we ended up um, all in all through the whole thing. I mean, raising a ton of money for uh, for food banks and stuff. And, and uh, yeah, kind of put our names on the map there. And then basically uh, from the restaurant and, yeah. Just kind of
0: carried on so it was it was fun so what made you go to the restaurant business
1: you know i guess in a way i mean i never i never did the barbecues to really with the thought of of um the restaurant growing i just assumed i guess maybe that you know it would it would grow. And I mean, in the summertime, we were busy, but wintertime in in downtown, any small downtown, I mean, it's dead, right? And, you know, in the summertime, we'd have the bank ladies walk over all the store people. We had a little patio outside. We were busy in the wintertime. Whatever money we made in the summer, we'd lose it in the winter. And we had a busy summer. We're going into winter. Things were starting to get slow and I couldn't do it. You know, I didn't want to go through another winter. I mean, there was days we had two customers and cameras, I guess, really didn't support us back to the extent that we supported them. So we, yeah, we, uh, we just closed it up before the winter really hit and I told Kyle I was going to go work at the mill. So I went over to, to, uh, the steel mills and cameras, which I mean is the kind of the main job thing or was for years. And, and, you know, I just said, I'm gonna go get a job and make some money and regroup. So went over and basically applied to the, at the mills, got on at Shop Pipe and that's kind of how my story started with them. But we pulled out from there.
0: Yeah. And tell us about the mill. How was that?
1: Yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, I I talk about it a lot, too. I mean, I remember walking into the place and, you know, I don't know, something just in my head, I'm like, this is temporary. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want it to be this. And I was working at the old plant in town and just being a laborer and whatever and, and, you know, working up. And I mean, it's a union job. It was my first ever union job. So I was learning some of that and learning the good and the bad that goes with that. And I kind of worked up and the mill got busy, moved up to a couple shifts. I started getting into a loader, started making some more money, which I enjoyed. Um, but, you know, it was so up and down it, and, and um, my intentions were just to quit. And then Shaw actually built a new facility um, in, in Camrose and there was opportunity. So I decided I would stick around for a little bit. And then um, I applied to go over to the new plant. It was the same union as a new plant. And... My seniority number, I think at the time in, in, uh, in the, in the mill was like 60 or 70. And so I figured, Hey, if I can get in the top 20 in, in either one of these plants, it'd be good. So I applied over the new plant. There's a lot of drama going on early on. So a lot of the guys kind of stayed away. And I think there was six or eight months that the people had to apply to different jobs to go over there. Whoever wanted to go over, whoever wanted to stay. I think the drama and the shit that was going on, you know, a lot of people kind of got gun shy and, uh, I ended up going from number 60, whatever. And when the deal closed in the U-Mill, I ended up going to number two. Oh, wow. And uh, so now I, you know, we were out there. We had uh, basically jobs and everything that we we had. And, um, and that's when I kind of, yeah, started getting my taste of the union environment. And we had some pretty shitty um, supervisors at the time. And there was a lot of fighting going on and a lot of kind of establishing ground. And, you know, I ended up kind of taking on the role as a, you know, the shop steward for the union, for the, and uh, we started. You know, I, I started kind of down that road, and again, it was kind of the the thing of the bullying, and they were bullying a lot of the employees, and I was the guy to stick up for them. And so, yeah, the first uh, year there was pretty pretty wild, pretty pretty crazy. Lots of fighting, lots of stress, lots of stuff to kind of get things established and building relationships and stuff. But uh, you know, all in all, at the end of the day, well, I ended up um, being there for ten years longer than I wanted to. And uh, at the end of the day, I I got nothing bad to say about the company. And I mean, they kept food on my table for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, I was appreciative of the the opportunities they gave me for sure. Didn't you start your own union? Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) what happened was um, you had the same union between both plants. And then once, I'd kind of fixed all the problems in the plant, like all the relationships got built and everything was good. Right. Then the guys at the old place wanted to come over and try to take our jobs now that it was calm. Yeah. And because it was under the same union, the union was going to put both plants under one agreement. Right. And the company didn't want that. And we sure the hell didn't want that, Mm -hmm. but the employees at the other plant did. And we basically told them like, I mean, yeah, now that, you know, we've done all the fighting for a year and everything. And I mean, it was a lot. And now that we've got it all established, now you want to come over. And now you want to take our jobs and bump us back down. Not going to happen. Right. And uh, so we fought it. And, and, you know, I basically kind of basically got to a point where I told him, I said, if you, I mean, I started doing some Googling and realized that, I mean, if anybody's ever tried to get a union into a place, holy shit, try to get one out. But uh, it just so happened that there's some rules that, I mean, you can only do it in the 11th or 12th month of like the whatever second year of the contract or whatever the hell it was. And whatever it was, we were in that.
0: Time period. Stars aligned.
1: Yeah, and I had like three weeks to get this done. So I basically told them either you guys back down and give us something in writing to say you're not gonna do this, or we're gonna do what we call a revocation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's revoking the rights of the union. And they called my bullshit. So we filed and we got all the employees inside and we literally kicked them out. You yeah. know? And then at that point we were kind of who brought up with the Teamsters union at that time. They came in with kind of the wrong mentality and we wanted some assurance that they weren't going to screw us around and they came in like we're going to show the company this and that and that wasn't really our fight so we got a little worried with them and uh and then i thought well what the hell I like, i don't know why i can't do this so i just said what if i started looking into researching how to you know build my own union and and my buddy dave there at the time it was uh one of my best friends and i mean he was working at the time there and you know he was he was my rock at that point my right hand and he jumped right in this with me and you know, Kyle worked there at the time too and he was involved with it with me and we basically um, had no money, no nothing and we kicked the union out, went and formed our own association and with with no money in the bank, we sat down with a multi-billion dollar corporation and ended up bargaining, bargaining the biggest uh, wage increase in that company's history at the time. Wow, and then we ended up just taking it over and ran that for a couple years, and and you know did that for quite a long time until basically I I left Shaw, and then there was no one really to run the place, so we got him kind of signed back up with a different union before we left. But yeah, I uh, I learned a lot through through the process of you know writing contracts and bargaining and. Leverage and just, you know, employees and relationships. So I, I, I learned, you know, an immense amount through the union. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the way a lot of unions are run. I understand the purpose of what they're there for. I believe in some cases they're needed, but I ran mine the way that we wanted to run it and we run it well. And uh, it's invaluable what I learned through that whole entire process. It really was the thing that took me from being like a hot headed little punk just to understand there was a process mm-hmm. and you play the process. You right. know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was just valuable, valuable, you know, lessons that I learned through that whole thing. So crazy. It's pretty
0: nuts. And when did you buy your rainbow? Holy cow.
1: Well, my parents actually had a rainbow back in the other early eighties. And it's actually a really funny story because David Spadey, who's our RG and uh, COE director here in, uh, in his office in Edmonton, been here for, His family's been in, you know, Rainbow for shit, 80 years. And uh, he was just a young punk dealer and was working the area that my parents farm and came out and knocking doors back in the 80s and actually sold my parents a rainbow back in 80s. So it's weird that 20 years later, whatever, 30 years later. I ended up working for him. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, but yeah, so that's how it kind of went down. But my parents had one for years and then never really thought much of it. And then um, I was actually, you know, we were friends with Jaylene and I would go over to her house one day and I remember walking over there and seeing, you know, I always made the joke. I mean, I was the fire chief for the town of Daysland at the time. And I remember walking over into her house and seeing this bubbling machine plugged into the wall. Making the joke like, "Why do you have water plugged into a light socket?" and started off the conversation. And I mean, she started off with the uh, with her thing, and I mean, it was funny because we teach our people not to say dumb shit, and she said dumb shit and found out the price and everything. In the machine actually funny because I actually told her she was an idiot. Um, I always talk about as an open house, but I basically told her that she's going to sell uh, this machine to the eight dumbest people on planet Earth and go broke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of made fun of her and and walked away from it. And it wasn't until three years later when I had seen what she'd done in this business and man, thank God she never gave up on me and, and still, you know, thank God we were friends, right? Because my entire life, and the life of really so many people would be different had she not, you know, had she just given up on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went from getting hit pretty hard with uh, with some reality and I tell the story a lot about how they, she bought this trailer, paid cash for it, I didn't believe her. She showed me, caught her bank account balance. It, it hit me like the biggest kick in the stomach I've ever received in my life. And she'd been in this business for a couple of years, had like a million dollars in the bank. Like it was just crazy. And that night she hit me with a whole pile of, what if this is the one thing that changes your life? And I finally agreed to the demo, told her I absolutely was not buying a damn thing at all, no matter what. I wanted to sell room, but I did not want to buy one. I didn't need one. I had no carpet in my house. I didn't have fabric in my house. Like I had nothing. Mm-hmm. And she came over and annihilated me in dirt. And I went from no way in hell am I buying this thing to, holy shit, I can't let this thing leave my house. Yeah. And... So I bought my rainbow in uh, August. I think it was the 23rd of uh, 2013.
0: And she was the one that sold it to you, obviously, then.
1: Great, amazing, Jalen Kaczynski. You and me both. Yeah. Um, and what, how was your demo? Like, tell us about your demo. Um, It was surprising. It was shocking. Like, I mean, I remember, like, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, yeah. um, she's pulling all this dog hair out of places I can't even see dog hair. And I remember making her pull the powerhead apart because I thought she was screwing with me. I didn't know how she got her Dalmatian's hair in the powerhead or why she would have that, but I thought for sure she was tricking me. Mm -hmm. And I spent the most of the time trying to figure out how she was tricking me because I couldn't believe it. And I just got to the point when I realized that this machine just just works. And it it was interesting because we were so broke. And I remember, and I think a part of, you know, I guess what I should probably lead up to this is when I go back to the farm and I think about never wanting i remember watching my dad and all the struggles he went through on the farm and i remember not ever wanting to feel like that and i i remember the last thing i ever wanted to be was my dad in terms of the life he had Mm -hmm. and i watched him work his ass off for nothing and just this broken down farm he's limping together and all this shit and it's funny that sometimes the thing that you want to avoid is the thing that ends up just slapping you right upside the face and i remember being broke and just struggling for money. And I remember actually, um, we're living out in Dayside on this acreage, doing this rent to own thing. And, you know, my credit was shot from all this shit in the past and everything. And, and I remember we were just struggling. And I remember just, we were living outside of our means and spending paycheck to paycheck. And I just remember having so many financial problems. You know, I remember my whole life just stressing about money, stressing about bills. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, just shaking, you know, in tears, unable to pay my bills, not able to do anything. And I remember... One time, um, we were on this, well not one time, lots of times, we were on our farm out in Daysland and I remember just having all the bills in front of me and just like, I I would just try to pay the one that was the most pissed off or the one that was the closest to being cut off. And we had this, um, our furnace was on propane and uh, we didn't have natural gas and we had to bring a propane truck out to fill this tank up. Well, that was about five or six hundred bucks for a half a tank and I think about a thousand bucks to fill it or something like that. And I remember not having the money. To, to fill it so I would the minimum these guys would come out for it was like 250 bucks so every time I could get 250 bucks I'd get these guys to come out and fill this tank up you know partially full and then you know we'd burn through it and you know we were we had a wood stove and I was cutting wood every day to keep the house warm and all that stuff and you know we were working pretty hard out there and I remember lots of times in the winter not being able to afford this propane and not being able to turn the furnace on and I remember for a long time eating our house um, with our oven and you know having the oven on and having it going and I remember so many times like pipes freezing and I remember we were gonna to go to Christmas time one time and my wife at the time her parents lived in in Edmonton and I remember I went out and bought this 100 pound propane tank one of those taller ones and I had to figure out some way to get this house to stay heated while we went to Edmonton for Christmas and I knew this propane tank would freeze because it was cold as hell out but I also knew that if you had a propane tank in water that it wouldn't freeze. But I also knew that water froze. So I concocted this thing where basically I had this big cattle watering trough and I put the propane tank in the water. And then I had a uh, like a watering bowl heater that I had plugged into the tub. So imagine like a tub with a big tank in it and a heater floating in it as well. And if I could keep the water from freezing, I could keep the tank from freezing and I could keep the house from freezing. And uh, so that was all good. And we went to town we went to Edmonton and everything was going good. And I figured after a couple of days, I better come out and check on it, you know. And I, so I drove back out to the farm and the power got disconnected because we couldn't afford the bill. And when you have no power, you can't plug in your little watering bowl heater. So it went out, the water froze, the tank froze, and all the pipes in the house froze. And I remember pipes burst in the house, everything just, you know, going to hell. And I remember just like, I don't know, I just fell down and I just had this meltdown. I remember just bawling. Having a complete stage four meltdown, like almost a nervous breakdown. And I realized at that moment that I'm my dad, that the one thing I tried to avoid is the one life I'm living right now. And, you know, the stress of money hit me, everything hit me. And, you know, here I am literally trying to chip out a stupid frozen thing to keep my house heated. You know, I felt like the worst failure. I just, I, I felt like shit. I just had a complete meltdown and, and I was done. And I just basically, I, I just basically said like, we're, we're getting out of here, we're going to town. We need to move to town. We got to start start living better and, and going. So it was hard to to get my wife with the time to agree with that. You know, she didn't care much about anything other than, you know, her horses and her stuff. And she didn't really work or share in my struggles at all. So it didn't matter to her. She just wanted to be looked after. She didn't give a shit about, you know, what I was going through or anything. And But I just kind of laid it down. There was no other option. And we sold whatever we had, got rid of all the horses, ended up buying dogs, moved into town. And, and that's where we were when when the rainbow showed up and uh where we started with uh with jaylene and so we went to the whole thing and she pulled us all out and uh we saw it and i mean i, I had no money I, I was so broke it was stupid I, I had nothing and you know one of the things that was crazy is i always had this image of like having it all together mm-hmm. and it was this ego right it was just ego and i was like i was the guy that everybody would have thought i, had. I was doing well i was you know well off and had money and we were just killing it and because that's his image i was portraying but deep down inside my whole entire life you know i'm 23 years old or I guess at that time I'm 33 years old sorry and I'm just 33 years of my life of just stress and financial and being broke and not having the money to do anything and you know I didn't leave Alberta till I was 28 like I was just always broke and just the 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 financial shit behind always behind my bills credit was just absolutely ruined from not paying bills getting foreclosed on all these things I'm heating my house with my you know with with an oven I remember when we first moved to Daysland I remember Aiden being little and coming up to me and going Daddy, can you turn on the oven? I'm cold. (laughs) You know, and just just breaking my heart. And I remember just breaking down and all this stuff. So now Jaylene's in this house with this thing. I fall in love with this machine. I got no money. I'm not going to let her do a credit report because I'm going to be declined. know it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want her to know that. So I was literally like, I need to figure out a way to pay for this. So, of course, like acting like the big high roller, I'm like, just leave it with me tonight. And I'll give you a credit card tomorrow. I didn't have a credit card. So I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So my stress about the rainbow was how the hell am I going to pay for this thing? Mm-hmm. I'm on kidding you, Eric. We went through everything we had. We sold shit. I took bottles to the Bottle Depot. I'm not even kidding you. Like I racked up change. We took out like, I mean, everything. I think, you know, I took out some RSPs at work, whatever it was. I took everything I could possibly get. Every dime I could possibly get. And I think we, I don't even know. I just, where it came from and 3,000 bucks. And I put it on a prepaid Bank of Montreal MasterCard that I had. And we swiped it through and it went through and I bought a rainbow with every freaking dime that I had to my name. I bought a rainbow, broke. And this was it for me. You know, it was my, when I seen the money that Jalen made and I seen what the machine did in the house, I was all in. And for me, it was like, I wasn't going to dip my toes in this. I wasn't going to whatever. I was literally going all in. And our program, I named it Go All In because that was what I did. And it was just go all in. And, and that was it. So I was literally all in. And Jalen didn't know that till years later. That was everything I had was poured into that rainbow. And I truly put everything I had into it. And it was it for me. It was my last crack at this. If, if And I was hungry. I was hungry to get the hell out of this situation once and for all in my life. I, was, I, I found something where it was an amazing product where I could show people I was excited about it. And I can make that kind of money and do it on my own terms. I'm working 40, 50 hours a week, even some weeks 60 hours a week at the mill. I'm a volunteer fire chief for the town of Daysland. I you know, got kids and everything else going on. When you look on paper, I didn't have a time to do a demo ever. I still bang out 16, 18, 20, 24 a month. And, and, I, and I was making money. But I was truly all in on the rainbow. 100%. Wow.
0: it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was it an was, uh, interesting time. When you put all your money all in, what was like your, like, were you scared? Were you terrified? It was, I was, it was desperate. For sure. It was, it was. But like, how did you know that it was going to work? It had to, I don't know. You just trusted Jaylene?
1: Yeah, I I trusted Jaylene immensely. I trusted the machine and what I saw. You also had the relationship
0: with her from before too. For sure.
1: But I I trusted my workability. Like I I knew I was a hard worker. Mm -hmm. Like I had no fear going out and crushing demos i have no fear of working around the clock i have no fear of going i mean you know even now i mean me and you have done some crazy around the clock working shit together you see it you know like i you know for an old dude like i'll still go hard and so i i believed in in my work abilities and i believed in that rainbow and i believed in jaylene right and 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 that was it and i just i i don't know something just told me just don't dip your toes in. Don't piss around. Don't make excuses. Just head down and ass up this thing and see where you end up. Mm-hmm. So it was. I was desperate for sure. I still had all these feelings that it's too good to be true. I was still scared of success. I didn't feel like I deserved to be successful. You know, just from all the years of programming and everything, I felt like this wasn't for people like me, you know, but I just I had nothing else to do. Nothing to lose. I was just done. I was all in.
0: And what about um, your ex-wife?
1: You know, she and I think, started off wanting, believing in me and the Rainbow and what I would do with it. She kind of came out of nowhere and surprised us all and started learning the demo and started doing it. And um, she actually ended up um, coming into Rainbow, but more in, the office, in an office role. Yeah. Not so much in the field. Right. And uh, she had basically um, worked up as kind of a manager um, for Rainbow.
0: And she loved Rainbow too then?
1: I mean, it seemed like she did, you know, and, uh, and seen what it could do and stuff, right? So... I I would say that she probably did, but yeah, she was in the field. I mean, and and again, she was never, you know, much of a worker, you know, I mean, out in the farm and stuff, she would work hard, but she just didn't want to work, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, so she didn't really want to go out and show it as much as she just wanted to kind of work in the office. But with me out in the field and her in the office, we were on a pretty good deal and we got like a, a GSD kind of team leader type Position we were getting a super commission every month and making six fifty a sale and getting some overrides and stuff you know based on her in the office. So while I was working and out in the field, I mean it was it was pretty good. Life was pretty good. We were rolling, but she was with it for a little bit and then ended up um, basically quitting.
0: And you finished your equity program, obviously. How fast did you do it?
1: Yeah, five days. Yeah I, yeah, I once I saw the machine, I'm like, holy shit! I just I went to a couple of my firefighters, went to some friends in town. You know, I set up two presentations a day for five days, ten. To demo sold eight and got my money back Mm -hmm. in in four days it's
0: pretty nice feeling
1: yeah it was great and (laughs) i mean i made 4400 bucks in five days and uh yeah and i and i remember we were going on a vacation the next day and i I used to do this trip with air miles i would save every air mile i had and we would you know we we saved it for years and went on this trip to, to disneyland we're gonna take the kids there and we bought the rainbow right before we went. And it was actually, that's what it actually was too. Is like, I spent all my trip money. <laughs> what we had saved up for the trip, we spent that too. So that's where some of the cash came from, I remember now. But yeah, we were, we literally bottles of to the depot, everything we could think of to go all in on this. So we went on this trip and I mean, air miles, most of it was free. But we literally, pretty much all of our spending money was gone, you know, on the rainbow. But then we made us 4,400 bucks before we left. So we had more money now when we went on it. And I remember being on this trip and for whatever reason, it was just the worst trip of my life. And it was just Stress mixed with excitement, mixed with like, I just can wait to get back and show the rainbow. Mm-hmm. And we came back and made thirteen thousand bucks in our next month, and I ended up making forty four thousand dollars in my first four months, um, just showing the rainbow and hitting bonuses. So crazy, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, for for me, I'm still making a hundred grand a year at the mill, working around the clock, and well, not around the clock, but working heavy and then doing rainbow every second I had free I was on a demo I remember you know shit trying to you know leaving work and and just running straight to race straight to a demo stealing my work gear and trying to change in the car and before we get into the demo and just crazy shit and uh and just going in and doing it but yeah I mean the money we saw it right away and just didn't stop just kept going
0: and what was it about the product you love so much
1: Um, you know, I mean, being a guy, I mean, shit, I never really give a shit about cleaning ever. You know what I mean? It was weird, but I was, I think I was just impressed with the fact that, you know, how well it worked. But I think the thing that's always baffled me about it is the fact of how it sucks up that much shit, traps it all in the water and cleans your air while it cleans your floor. Like it's the only cleaning system on earth that's certified to clean your air. Mm -hmm. And you think about how much crap that machine sucks up and just goes hammering through that hose into that water basin and it still cleans your air. To me, that's just always been like the most baffling thing that none of it gets out. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that was probably the biggest thing that really impressed me and and just going through it and just, and just seeing the quality of it and and believing in it. And I knew if it could do that in my house with no carpet, I can only imagine what it's gonna do in everybody else's house. Mm-hmm. And we had power cleaned before like everybody else does. And I mean, it just, it just impressed me. I just It was just the most proof in the pudding, legit thing I had ever seen that just proves itself no matter what. Like I said, it's not the pill that you take and one day you'll lose weight. It's none of this smoke and mirror shit. It's just like the, all the dirt's pulled out in front of you. You can feel better instantly. And it's like, do you want this out or not? Mm -hmm. It was simple, easy to understand. All the dry shit gets wet. It's a simple business. There was no scientific charts and shit and whatever. I just, I was impressed from the second I seen it.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about like, you know, highlights as a dealer? Um, did you have one that stuck out more than others? Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, there was there was lots as a dealer. I mean, shit, I I, I mean, I went pretty hard on a lot of demos, and there was a lot of times. I mean, there was a couple of times I I sold three machines in a in a house, and I remember a lot of funny stories. <laughs> we might save for another another show, but I think probably probably the turning point for me as a as a dealer, I got to the point of and I don't know, it was weird. I got to the point of when I was showing family and friends the rainbow, it was a. It was a ton of people. And I mean, I knew a lot of people. I wasn't scared to, I just went into people's homes. Like I just, I would go over and show them. I mean, I would drive by from work and if i seen a buddy who was home, I would pull over, go to his house, drag the rainbow to his house and show him and never pressure anybody, never, but just, they would see it. They love it. They trusted what I said and then they'd buy it. I remember my ex brother-in-law at the time, he uh, told me he was all like, kind of actually all negative about it. And I wanted to get over to see him just so he could see the machine. And I snuck over to his house one day. I found out he was home. I snuck over to Edmonton, went into his house. I snuck up, like scaling the side of his house, get up to his door with his box, knock on the door. He opens the door, sees the box, tries to slam the door. I stick my foot in the door and he kicks me. And like I pushed the door open. I told him to sit down and shut the hell up. And I, you know, told Jess to get downstairs and did the demo for him. And they ended up buying it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that was the kind of product we have. People who are like, absolutely, he kicked me. And then he paid credit card stupid it was just i i loved it you know i loved every inch of that machine and everything it did and i just took it out there and and head down and ass up and and went after it and just and just didn't stop but i remember for whatever reason after um this was in in end of november no november i think so you know august we, we waited at the end of last week we made the Forty five hundred bucks in the last week. September we made thirteen thousand. October, November, and November was going to be my month. And no, and I remember telling Jillian like I'm going to do I'm to do twenty four demos. It was like this big thing, and I had thought that no one had ever done. It. I guess Kim Kim had done it one time, but it was like this big thing. And she was all encouraging and supporting me. And this was going to be my month. I'm going to sell all of them. And I mean, I was selling high. I was selling every rainbow, right? Like I mean, I, we were selling like yeah, honestly, eight or nine out of ten. And so I was just going to go do twenty four demos and sell twenty. And it ended up being the worst month I ever had in Rainbow. And and I went six for 24, and which, I mean, isn't terrible. But when you're selling, you know, 20 to 24 on average, I mean, six sucks. And I remember driving to Calgary. And, I mean, you know, I had this, like, I had this shitty car. I had a Chrysler Intrepid, a green one, like that tealy green. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And this thing, I bought it for 400 bucks, drove it for three years, and sold it for 400 bucks. And I remember, like, the hubcaps used to fall off this thing. I was driving into Tim Hortons, you know, one time and all at 6 in the morning before I'm going to work. And all of a sudden, like, this guy's walking up to me in the drive-thru. And I'm ready to punch him, thinking this guy's coming to mug me. And he's got my hubcap. It rolled off and smashed into his truck. I just threw it in the backseat. So this is the car I had. And, and you know, I'm going to go down to Calgary. And that's my goal, is to go down there and do 24 demos. But I couldn't, my car wouldn't make it. And I mean, the, the snow, it was wintertime and the snow was blowing through the windshield. <laughs> like, it was not a safe car. You know, it's got 400 and some thousand kilometers on it. Just silly, right? And uh, so I was renting a vehicle and on the weekends and I was heading down to Calgary and staying in a hotel and so now I'm putting money into it you know and I remember going down there and selling over six over eight two weekends in a row I didn't sell a single rainbow putting on a couple hundred bucks for the hotels you know vehicle I'm turning down overtime at work and you know and I, and I kind of had the same mentality that everybody else has right it's like oh I'm spending this money I'm spending my gas I mean I was never really native in terms of that but it was just it was affecting me in terms of like I am actually putting this money out that I don't have and I'm not making it back when then I kind of had the like, well, I could have just went to work. And so, you know, the voices were in my head hard mm-hmm. and telling me this maybe this isn't for you. It was the first month I was kind of going to strangers, right? I was everybody before that was just families and friends and just people I knew or knew me. This was the first time. Like, I'm doing trade show leads, I'm doing you know, draw box leads and shit like that. And these people don't have a clue who I am. And I was going in doing a shitty demo, trying to sell it on on my personality, trying to sell it on my reputation. And these guys don't know me, and they weren't buying. And uh, I remember the thing that probably saved my career in Rainbow, and and I remember it was towards the end of November, and I was quitting. I was I was done. I was honestly, I was, I, was, I was seriously, you know, I was 0 for 8 one weekend. Um, The weekend before, or no, it was the weekend before I was 0 for 8, and that weekend, like, everybody rescheduled on me. You know, I just had resets everywhere, and I was coming back home second week in a row, didn't sell a dime, and I was just pissed off and upset and hurt and then all the voices got the best of me and I actually called Jaylene and I didn't tell her I was like the words I'm quitting but I gave her my goodbye speech I thanked her for her time and everything and just kind of went through that thing and really appreciated it but I was just I was quitting and I didn't want to leave in my customers high and dry so instead of quitting immediately I said well I still got a couple a referral program to finish down there and I got a couple demos so I'm gonna go down there and you know I had a lady who wanted a rain mate she gave me an insta set and I had a another customer that just had the last demo for their program and I had a free rainbow I needed to sell, but I had to sell, I think I had to sell two before I, you know, in between before I got that one. So I'm thinking I got two demos, whatever. So I went down there and never really even thought too much about this free machine. And uh, it was interesting. Because I went in the first demo and I sold it. So I felt pretty good. I came out. I'm like, okay, you know, make a little bit of money before I leave. And it was actually, or no, I think I just saw three rainbows. How I don't know how it all went down. I just saw three rainbows and I had this free one. And so I sold that one. And then actually, when I came out of that demo, it was crazy because I actually had a customer call me back from the weekend before and in one of the 0 for eight days, they called me back and went and dropped them off a bow Then I had my one demo the next day. So again, I got one demo, you know, I'm still two away for this free machine. I wasn't even really thinking about the free rainbow really at that point. I was just like, I want to go to this demo. This was a lead for someone who didn't buy the rainbow. She just thought her mom would like it. I was just like, whatever, I'm gonna go do it quickly and and whatever. So this was my last demo in rainbow. Like I'm done and I go to this beautiful house in Evergreen down in Calgary and I walk in and it's white plush carpets and spiral staircases. And there's a Filipino lady and a, and a Japanese man and and uh, Nikki's parents. And I came in there and sat down and, you know, Johnny didn't say a word. He just sat there and just kind of stared at me the whole time and watched me take everything out of the box. And Perlita she's running around and she's like, oh, Nikki show me the pictures of her house. Her house is so dirty. My house isn't that dirty and blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, long story short, I start slinging dirt with a rainbow and these white plush carpets. All of a sudden, all this crap's coming out of it. And Perlita's losing her shit. And John's sitting there giggling. And I got to the end of it. I mean, this is my last demo. I don't ever care, really. I mean, I didn't I wasn't. Didn't give him my all, that's for sure. And at the end, John goes, um, okay, well, I'll take two. And I'm like, two what? He's like, two rainbows. I was like, oh shit, okay. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, okay. And then, you know, kind of plan it off. Like, yeah, of course, I'll we'll take two. Like, who wouldn't, right? And so I'm thinking like, well, he's going to buy one for himself and one for his daughter, obviously, right? And I think that's what the daughter's intentions were. So we go in there and all of a sudden it's like, he's going through it, and he's like, well, I own the Japanese village in Calgary and I want one for my restaurant. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he goes, well, what about Nikki? And he goes, okay, I'll take three. Now in my head now, and I, I still haven't really f- clicked on the free rainbow yet. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, holy shit, 650, 650, 650. Like, I'm, you know, making a killing. And at the end of the day, and I remembered as I'm doing the paperwork about this free rainbow, and I sold him a whole bunch of other shit and everything else. And I never, I made five grand in this demo. And I came out of that house. And I mean, I was like a puppy dog out the window in November. Like, the window was rolled out, and I was like screaming. I'm just like, woohoo. Like, this was just the greatest thing. And, and that three hour drive back home, was probably the most revelation I've ever had in anything in my entire life. Everything just started connecting, making sense, and everything that I teach today started really in that moment where I realized you gotta fail to succeed. You have to, you know, you have to go down to go up. You have to go through the shit. You have to, you know, there's a process, follow it. Everything, every lesson was just pounding on me. And I realized that I'd given up last week and I would have missed out on 5,000 bucks in two hours. And I just realized, I just started to get it. Everything just clicked for me. And that that demo and that thing just put all the pieces together. And I went from quitting to being locked into this business for the rest of my life and understanding so much about it. I came out of that. I started doing the demo correctly, started pulling all the dirt correctly, started doing everything. And you know what? I, I, I've sold rainbows, you know, for, for 10 years. And, you know, my closing percentage is 87%. Always has been all the way through, you know, it's my career closing and I almost gave it up. But that moment, that was it. And that changed absolutely everything in my life. And I was hooked. So that was probably one of the, was definitely the most defining moment in my career. Probably one of the most defining moments of my life. And it happened on a, on a rainbow demo. So that was the, that was it for me. So as a dealer, definitely that was it. That's crazy. Yeah for sure. So there've been lots of things. There've been three in a house a few times. There's been lots of big checks and stuff like that, but nothing that ever was that, like I said, just that trip back home, how everything was just the stars were aligning. It was just like all the puzzle pieces just going together. And I just got it. I just came out of that, that drive home. I, I I changed me. It changed everything in me. Mm -hmm.
0: So, wow. And when did you start thinking about a manager position? (laughs) Right after that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. I
1: mean, we were, we were kind of in that position and I mean, um, it, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be a manager. Still didn't have intention to quit my job. But I remember pretty much when I really started focusing on on getting out of my job and wanting to really attach myself to Jalen and, and really blow this up. It was pretty early on. I always had bigger goals in mind. I didn't come in this to be a dealer, mm-hmm. you know. So I would say right from the beginning, I, I had aspirations. I don't know if I ever wanted an office or I thought about it, but I, but I definitely wanted to. to to be in charge of something and, and to to be the man right well
0: and you've kind of been doing that everywhere you went so
1: yeah and up to that point i mean I'd, every job i'd ever had i ended up being a trainer or a supervisor or manager or something you know so, yeah um so I, i'd always been a manager i'd always been a thing i remember even early on i mean yeah i just always had aspirations to to do it
0: yeah so life has turned around things are looking good going well You actually hit one of your biggest months in history as a manager and you know, you're rolling and then life kicks you back in the ass and your whole life changes. Mm -hmm. You go through a divorce. How'd that go? You know, it was interesting
1: because February of 20, so January of 2015, I don't know, for whatever reason I told Jillian, I said, I want to go to Saskatoon, Mm -hmm. Saskatchewan. And she's like, why? I'd never been there. She'd never been there. I'm like, I don't know. I just, we got to get there. And we were in this Filipino market and we were building it up there and we sold a rainbow to a lady. And I remember end of January, we sold her a rainbow and uh, I walked into Saskatoon um, with one rainbow. And 28 days later, we had sold 66 machines in 28 days, starting with one demo and one machine. And that was the wildest. I mean, I sold 24 it was funny because Jalen we didn't even know there was a 25 sales pin. I had sold 24 rainbows, but there was actually a day where I closed out eight sales in one day. And our our Filipino market, you know, we I mean they're huge in rainbow, we love them all. And but in the beginning, they're very skeptical to go on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. And they like their little bubbles and they stay there. And and so I used to basically trick my dealers into going on their own. I would tell them to go in the demo and get it started and then i tell them i'll be there in 10 minutes but i'm driving in the opposite direction to another town to do another demo and once they were there and they just thought i was coming they would just kept doing it and once they were kind of forced to do it they did it they were fine they were on their own um so i lined them up where basically we had a demo every hour and i did the first one and what happened basically was i would do the first one and when they bought it i would leave the dealer that you know the, the person i was with i would get them to do the paperwork, and i would leave and by the time i got to the next demo it had already been running for about an hour So I got there kind of at the closing part, so I would close out that one. And then when they would buy and I would leave that dealer who did the demo to do the paperwork, I'd go to the next house and I actually closed out eight sales in one day. Well, in this 24 that I sold, those eight weren't in there. So I ended up selling 32, 33 machines. And, and a few more even than I ever took credit for, right? So I was probably on, you know, 30, 30 35 sales probably that month. I didn't even know anything about a 25 sales, you know, thing and neither did Jillian. So I just, I submitted 24 because I was 24, like just full to finish legit demos that I was there for the entire thing on, you know, even though like the other ones wouldn't have sold without me. so. Anyway, huge month, made $31,000 as a manager. It was my biggest month. Um, shit was rolling. You know, we had all these people. I just blew this thing up. Our office our office just hit 192 sales. It was one of the best months. I mean, our best month ever. One of the best months for a satellite. Like It was just crazy. And all this recognition, I ended up. I mean, I was winning. Like, I mean, we go to world conventions. I was, I won eight free rainbows at the Rainbow World meeting. Like, I mean, you know, it's funny now because our people, we go to these meetings and there's so many people up there. Like, I was, like, I was on top of these lists all, everywhere, right? Just killing it. And uh, yeah, so one of my best months, and we're just rolling. Things were good. And you know, I'm on this deal where because my wife's in the office. You know and managing and we're doing this together. I'm making 650 on these sales. We're getting this super commission every month We're getting some overrides. I'm out here crushing it And I remember we had a free rainbow to sell and I'll never forget this and this is where things were really falling apart because she started talking about quitting rainbow We're making 20,000 bucks a month on average And she's complaining that she's overworked and underpaid I couldn't even believe it. It was the most selfish thing i ever heard in my life and I remember um Trying to get her to hold on. And I had just quit my job at Shaw. And I think I was done in December. And we're in February. And we had, uh, she's talking about quitting. I'm trying to get her to hold on. You know, we ended up getting a horse again. And I, I was boarding this horse at the stable. We're paying the board this horse. It's, it's lots of money. And I kept saying things. I'm like, you know, if you, if you quit this job, you're not going to afford this horse and you know, blah, 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 please don't quit. And yada, yada. And I remember we had a free rainbow to sell. It was a, it was a, a bonus we had. And we had a free machine. Now, you know, we, ha- as you guys know, in rainbow, we have to sell it on a personal lead. Well, I'm on Saskatoon. I'm running all ride alongs. And I remember, I remember asking her, I said, you need to go sell like, and she'd done lots of demos before, right? I said, you need to go out and sell our free rainbow. Or we're going to lose it. You have 30 days to sell it. But you got to sell it. Um, I'm on RiteLys. I don't have any personal leads out here. Like, I, I can't sell it. I said, you need to, I said, I just go do one demo. I'll book it for you, hook it up for you, whatever. And she's like, no, if you want to sell it, you, if you want to make the money, you go sell it. And she wouldn't go in on one demo. I'm out crushing 30. She wouldn't do one. And I remember just getting pissed right off. And, and we actually lost that for Rainbow. And, I mean... I sold 24 that month. So Jaylene threw me a bone and I sold it in the first day of the next month when I got back home. So she gave it to me, but in essence, we would have lost it. And I remember just being so pissed off and I'll never forget. I'm down in Saskatoon and I get a phone call and she's crying, my wife. And I'm like, first reaction, like, oh my God, who died? What's going on? And she said, I sold my horse. And I knew at that moment. She quit. That she quit. And that's why. Is because that's, I mean, and she loved horses, loves horses. And for her to, s- to not want to work so bad that she would sell, I mean, and a beautiful horse, just really showed me the character of that kind of person. And she quit. When she quit, I lost my deal. Right? The 650, the, the super commissions, all that stuff was based on both of us. Mm-hmm. Well, Rainbow just lost a manager in the office. I'm all that's left. And I just quit my job. Yeah. And I was freaking out. That was really, I mean, and, and, I mean, obviously anytime you get divorced, there's a lot of shit leading up to it, but, and there was a lot of shit for a lot of years, but that was literally the straw that broke the camel's back that she didn't care what I was doing financially. She didn't care. It's just, she just wanted to sit and do her thing, you know, and not work. You know, I mean, a perfect day for her was sitting on the couch watching Teen Mom all day. I would wake up in the morning, you know, she'd be in her pajamas, I'd come home at night, she's still in her pajamas on the couch watching TV. And again, obviously, you know, my take on TVs and that kind of shit. So it's like, this just wasn't my person. Mm-hmm. And we were roommates for years and everything. And, you know, and, and it just, that was it, you know, and and I was done, I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I wasn't, you know, I would be going on trips, we'd be winning trips at Rainbow, she didn't wanna go. Like, it was, it was bad. And I would start going on these trips because she wouldn't come. And I just, you know, and it was just, it was so much that built up to it. But that was really the end of it. And and I was done. And that was it. We, you know, I, I filed for divorce. And, you know, I was just out and done. And, and, you know, I outgrew her. And I wasn't that person. I mean, she's, she was everything that I tell people not to be. And I know because I was living with it every single day. I lived with it every single day. And I watched what it did. And that's where I know. It's just, it's not... it's not good for anybody, you know? And that was it. So I was out, I was done. I left absolutely everything behind. We had a truck that I had some payments on still that I owed money on. Um, I took uh, our holiday trailer and our truck. You know, we had debt on the truck, holiday trailer I bought with rainbow money. We bought it with rainbow money. I left her the house, the mortgage, all my stuff, everything, you know, I I bought her a new vehicle or we bought her a new vehicle in rainbow after that, left everything. And for the next, you know, six, eight months, I paid the mortgage, I paid the utility bills, I paid her insurance, I paid her everything. And, you know, for me, it wasn't about wanting to make things hard or whatever. I just, I needed out of it. I couldn't be with this type of a person anymore. And where I wanted to go with my life, I just, you know, it was dragging me down. It was holding me there. And, you know, I do a lot of teaching on you got to cut the negativity out of your life, no matter who it is. And I lived it. I had to cut my wife at the time out of my life just because I couldn't handle the daily negativity, the constant drama. You know the constant just i would come home and it was just like a just a weight on the house i was just like couldn't do it you did it for you know 13 years and it was just negative 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 and it piled up and that was it i was done so it was hard and, and and you know now you're in this career and everything's rolling and now you're out and and shit thank god for rainbow and you know i went to jaylene and i said look i need a new deal i said she's obviously gone she i mean she left jaylene high and dry she left to quit the office everything and now, now we're you know here and done, and it's just this, this thing. And I said, give me a deal, give me something to build on. I said, it doesn't have to be much. Just give me a goal, give me a goal, give me a rainbow. And she put me on a small deal where, I mean, I could rebuild kind of what I had. There was nobody in the office I was working with at that time. She's like, I'll give you an an override, a $25 override on everybody that you work with starting now going forward. Um, She ended up moving up to 50 right away. I got a super commission. If the office hit 75, I got another one if we hit 100. And she said, if you do, you know, your 20 demos a month or whatever, I'll give you 650. And that was the, that was the goal. So we, um, we did it and I built everything my whole entire rainbow career empire everything office all started from from that so i had my own way and moved on and and it was just a another hurdle in the road so
0: did you have a lot of support going through that or no
1: um no not really i mean everything <laughs> you know i mean like like my friends and family were her friends and family and this was a time too where you know i told you kind of about that I mean, I talked about it on earlier episodes. I mean, it was a five-year period. I think we talked about it earlier, but there was a five-year period I didn't talk to my parents. Yeah. And I was in that right there. I didn't have a relationship with, with my brother at all. I had no relationship with my parents, no family I was talking to, um, friends. I had a, a my best friend, one of my best friends at the time. He was a peace officer, and we had do this poker night all the time, and he, we were starting off in rainbow, and and he just got all negative about it. He wouldn't, He and he basically accused me of ripping people off. Mm-hmm. which hit a nerve with me because I don't rip people off. And, you know, we had some drinks and we were drinking and he started antagonizing me, started doing it. And I remember, you know, I'm nose to nose with this guy, poking him in the forehead, basically telling him if this is how you feel about me and you think that I would go around ripping people off, then, you know, we're not the friends I thought I were. And I ended up cutting my good friend out of my life at that time. And so, no, I didn't really have anybody. And, yeah. um, I'm not the kind of person that bashes a parent to my son's. You know, I mean, obviously, and, and I kept everything civil. He's never, still to the day, has never heard me say anything negative with his mother. And it is what it is. So, no, I didn't have a whole lot of support in that time. Rainbow people were my support and and, and stuff, but it was tough. You know, I went through a lot of things on my own and, and rebuilt through a lot of things. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a, a dark time for sure.
0: What advice do you have for anybody going through anything like that?
1: You know, um i felt like the biggest failure right I'm a, I'm a christian i i don't give up on things
0: mm-hmm.
1: and my everything that i talk about is not quitting not quitting not quitting so it wasn't easy to quit on something as important as a marriage mm-hmm. but this is where i get i guess maybe so passionate about the the fact of having to i look back in 13 years and go man like The amount of negativity, the amount of everything that was in my life in that time and the amount of like sand that I gave up. And I don't I don't would say I regret it. I mean, obviously, I don't regret you know, thing I have my son and all this. But it's like I, I gave that way more sand than I needed to. And it was it was hard. So my advice is, I mean, fight, fight for it all the way. If it's something that you if that's your person and you feel it is fight for it, you know, don't don't give up fight, fight and fight and fight. But it comes to a point as if you're not met halfway, because it takes two people in every single relationship. It takes two people. Okay. And if that person is not willing to meet you there, then you have to do what you have to do. And because you can't be the only one who fights, it's not fair. If one person doesn't give a shit and the other person's fighting all the time, that's not a relationship. Right. So if it happens and you're going through it, I mean, Time heals all, right? I mean, it does. And and you go through it and you keep yourself busy and you just hammer down. And every day, no matter how hard and no matter how much you don't want to do it. I mean, we're all crushing demos at this time. You know how hard it is to go in demo when you don't have to? Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about wanting you know, we have dealers that don't have to go on demos and don't go on demos. Imagine going through what we went through and then still having to go into your demos and still doing it. And that's where I think, you know, I really realized a lot of like even what my capabilities were. That was probably the most broken I ever was in general, just in life in general and going through all the stuff and then crushing Rainbow and being re-scared in Rainbow because I don't have this guarantee anymore and just going through it all and, and or not even a guarantee, but just the, the same deal, you know, rebuilding in, in life, rebuilding in the business, rebuilding everything. And, uh, and, and again, it just, you know, I just kept plugging away, I kept working at it and it, uh, it pays off. So, you know what? I mean, you, you will get through it. You will get over it. And. Just keep pushing away and don't stop no matter what crazy mm-hmm.
0: well now you're managing mm-hmm. the camera's office yeah obviously, i obviously have lots of great months and you guys are actually top five satellites in all of rex air history what was that like you know
1: working with Jalen kaczynski has been just i mean i mean you know right i mean it's she's amazing and she, she just got her promotion to RGD. When again, she's currently again one of the top five, like you said, Rex Air satellites of all time, and you know, two-time Grand Princess winner. I mean, monthly. I mean, you've seen the trophy case. Holy shit! Just not enough for him. Yeah, and you know, so it, it was an honor. It was it was truly an honor to manage with her throughout the whole entire thing. To be there, she's she's she pushes people to their to their. to to be their best um she's an amazing leader she's a compassionate leader um it's funny because she's hard on me and always was but she knew that i needed it but you know the the one thing that was really dangerous is and the the reason i'm here is because she believed in me and you know we talked earlier about you know some of the people early on in my life that uh, that i remember and i mean you know sometimes when you believe in someone it's a it just it's really powerful powerful and she did and that's really all I needed Mm -hmm. somebody who could just be like hey you can be the best and you can do this and you can go and I believe in you and just get out of the way so it's been an honor I mean people you know in, in the rainbow world who know her you know love her and she's an icon and uh yeah I mean it's been just an absolute pleasure and an honor and I've never learned more in my entire life than basically being by her side and we went through just a massive amount of shit together, and it's been it's been amazing. But it's been the best thing in my life for sure.
0: And what about like when you decided you wanted to open up your own office? Um, what made you decide to do that?
1: I don't, you know, I I think what it honestly was, that, I mean, I, I got to a long place of comfort when I kind of built my deal back up, and and we were making really good money. I was making a killing again, got back up into the twenty thirty thousand range, right? It was going good, and uh, I remember we changed and we had a different goal right we you know the, the business wasn't running as well as it appeared to be on the outside Jalen was stuck in her desk bawling all the time crying because it was just overwhelmed with work everything was done manually there was no systems in place no nothing and uh you know we had this old just everything we did was handwritten you know our programs our you know demo binder everything was just everything and i remember just basically we we went down and saw chris and vicky and they invited us to come down to Georgia and see them. And there's some of the top distributors in the world. And we had the honor to go hang out with them and their team for a week at their house. And, and they just treated us like family and always have. And, uh, I remember just at the time they were blowing us up to, you know, a thousand to 1500 sales, pushing 2000 sales, the whole world thought they had some magic program. And we went down there and they never told us anything. They, we just watched and we realized that there's no magic program. It's just how you treat people, how you run your organization. And, uh, we tried to use them as that example, and we realized we needed to change almost everything in our business. And we did. And and we came back, went to work, started self-developing ourselves, started growing, started building. And then when me and Julian had a, had a vision to build up and, and do it differently and, and open up lots of offices and offer opportunity, and I realized that for me to help anybody, you know, and it's everything that we talk about and preach, You can't help anybody if you don't know what they're going through. So I can't help anybody be a distributor because I've never done it. I don't know what it feels like. I don't know. I've never went through the emotions of it. So I knew for me to help anybody that I had to go and do it. So I, yeah, I, you know, me and Julian had a talk, you know, we had so many ups and downs in in our relationship that eventually developed that, uh, it was, uh, it was a time where I'm just like, I need to go do this. She agreed. I walked out of her office, you know, and again, I mean, she talks about the story too. I mean, I was a, I was a, I was a good manager. And, and I was with her every second of the day. Like I said, I was in her office more than she was. There wasn't a day that I left and she was still in the office. Like it was just, I was there. And so, so it was hard on her. I, she held it in pretty good. She told me afterwards, like she just bawled and bawled and bawled when I left. And if I would have known, I never would have left. And I think she knew that. So she put on this brave, tough face that it's like, okay, go. And so I went down and three months, opened up my own office, hit worldwide sales champ, built it up and, and, and then worked it. And I mean, and then once I kind of went through qualifying and went through all of it, I realized like, again, what it takes and what you have to do. And so part of the reason now there was two of us who've gone through it. So now, I mean, when we help other people, it's the same thing. You have to, you know, what they're going through to be able, it's like, we talk about any kind of leadership, right? you, Can't expect people to do something you haven't done, and if you don't know what they're going through, then you're useless to them. So that was just part of my learning process to be able to take it to the next
0: level. And then you qualify, and you know you're an area distributor. Mm -hmm. Was that an easy process? Hard process?
1: You know, like I don't know. I don't. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound too stupid either. I mean, it it was. I mean, I don't know. I want to. I mean, you got to have a couple recruits too. It's not just about how many you could sell. I mean. I sold sixty six rainbows in three months. You know what I mean. And so I mean, I think you got to sell seventy five. You know what I mean. And we ended up selling, I think, 80, 88 or something like that. So I mean, we 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 hit the numbers well. Um, but it was yeah, like it, it 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 was a lot of work and it was a, a you know just grinding. But it, I just went head down ass up for three months and hit it. Like you know what I mean. I recruited people. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do, which was important um, to me, was when I went to Calgary to qualify, I wanted to start at a dealer again. And that's many people would want to do that. And I said, I want to build it from the ground up. So I started off as a dealer. I said, I started off at a $400 commission. And if I did the 16 demos, which I think was like 12 at the time, that you would go up to um, 500. And then I need to get two recruits and have them kitted and two sales on their own to hit GST and go back to 650. And I... Brought Kyle with me, so that was one. But I actually kitted legit two people within the first two weeks and had them both with their sales um, in the first two weeks that I went down there. So I actually hit GSD before at the end. I went back to 650 before I ever got a dealer paycheck. And we just crushed it and blew it up. So, you know, I just went from dealer to executive to GSD. Just bang, 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 in two weeks. And and then qualified for my office. So it was... um, I think when I look back now, I think like it really isn't that difficult. If you just put your mind to it, you can do it. It's not hard. But, you know, I still remember the emotions going through it and the, the stresses and the worrying about it and that kind of stuff. But I mean, I think if, for me, it was more difficult after the fact than it was, you know, even qualifying for it. You know, I went pretty hard and just got it done in the qualifying part. So it wasn't too bad.
0: Mm. You know, obviously when you open up, you have highs and lows. Yep. Yeah. How are those? Um,
1: you know what? It was, it was good. I mean, my, my goal right away was to be satellite and I screwed up. I, um, for whatever reason, I just came out of one of the most successful offices, you know, in, in rainbow and, you know, one of the most successful women in rainbow anyway. And Dallas Raimi decides he's going to do it differently. And I just, it was actually kind of funny because Jaleen built her organization on like 50 people selling two. And there's women and there's drama and I, I'm going to go down there. And I'm going to open up my office and I'm going to get like five guys. And there's going to be slayers, you know, and I'm going to do assassins. it. Yeah, and that's it. <sighs> Dow assassins. And that's what I'm looking for. And I'm going to have no women. There's going to be no drama. And I got it. And there was no women and there was no drama and there was no sales and there was no recruits and there was no warmth and there was no fun and there was no excitement and it was a cold, shitty, crappy place. And so I struggled. I was trying to hit 50 for three months in a row to become satellite. I stayed in the field the first two years straight. And I just remember, you know, he hit 50, hit 50, and then not hit 50. Then hit he would hit twice and then not, and not. And I remember one day it was it was, it was awesome. It was uh, talking to Dave Spadey and the, a big turning point. And he goes, he literally just, and, he, and Dave don't say too much too often, right? Mm-hmm. He was like, Dallas, who the hell do you think you are? I'm like, what? What are you talking about, Dave? He's like, you just came out of the, one of the most successful offices ever. Who the hell do you think you are? To change it. He's like, how do you work beside Jaden Kaczynski for four years and then think you're going to do it differently? And I never really thought about it from that perspective. And I went like, holy shit. Yeah, like, what am I doing? Right. And Jayden's out killing it. She's hitting 75, 80, 100, 120 without me, you know? And I'm still doing her thing. Just doing her thing. And I'm just like, what the hell? So I fired everybody. I went through personally one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. We had some family things. And, and, you know, I was at a point where I was at rock bottom. And there was was only two months I ever felt below 25 um, in my office. And, they were back-to-back months, and, and my lowest month was in November, and it was it was 14 sales, as a as an area distributor, and I didn't do any demos, you know, those two months, and just went through some crazy shit, and one of the worst moments of my life, and we basically, um, I just realized, you know, you can't stay down, and I have to start practicing the shit that I preach, and no matter what happens to you in life, you just got to go, and so I got up and, and realized that, you know, my business wasn't where I wanted it to be. I didn't recognize it. I had a bunch of, you know, people. I, I let everybody go. Um, fired the staff they were just screwing me over and you know like everything and excuses and I literally let everybody go at 14 sales and I pretty much just had myself um, you know Sam who wasn't doing much at the time either Mike wasn't doing much at the time either but I pretty much had just being Kyle and I even benched Kyle and I'm like I'm building my business back up myself and I fired the office lady I fired the marketing people everything and I took over the marketing took over the office stuff I took over every single thing I booked the demos I went out and ran the demos and I rebuilt it and you know I went out and sold you know 18 or 20 in that December I got so busy with referrals I couldn't do anymore so I put Kyle back on the shelf um or put Kyle back in the in the field you know we ended up hitting you know 35 or something like that and recruited a whole bunch of people and the next month we had 50 and then we never looked back again and uh some of the people we got in that month are, you know, Kayla and Naomi and, you know, Sam stayed through. I brought Mike in full time and just got back in my business and just 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 blew it up and developed amazing people, Worked with them every single day. And I mean, two of them became distributors and, and Kyle and, and Mike. And then, I mean, Kayla's you know my main manager and Naomi's, you know, done more demos than anybody in our organization in the last five years. And Sam's like now one of the top, like just, you know, it's just those are the people that by me getting back in my business, those are the people that I, I, that I worked with. And from from really just getting back into it and, and not making those excuses, I was rewarded for it. And I'm still getting paid for it today and will for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where sometimes it's just like when you do the right things and you just overcome the shit and you just go to work, you, you know, it's reaping and sowing. It comes back right. and, and you get it, you know. Yeah. So we hit satellite, bang, bang, bang. And yeah, never looked back. And then eventually... To super satellite and you know have even hit qualifications for rgd
0: how long did it take you to become satellite um just under
1: i started qualifying in that in that december so it was just shy of a year i qualified like so you had to do three months of it so i think it was december january and february so when i just passed a year i was a satellite so it it took me i guess nine or ten months to do my first one which was too long for me Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't I was a huge manager coming out of Jaylene's thing. I mean, I, you know, and again, I was a little arrogant, a little cocky, thought out, I'm just going to come out and kill it. You know, like all of our area distributors do when they first leave, they just think they're going to go out and sell 300. And you realize, you really do realize how much your distributor does for you Mm -hmm. when you first step out of there. You don't really realize it. I I think sometimes you just think it's a lot of you until you get out there and realize holy shit and as much as i was a really good manager there were still things when i became my own that i I realized i could have done better when i was a manager so but
0: crazy so now things are going decent for you know you and jay i got a couple offices open yeah gain a little bit of traction and then the bottom falls out on you guys you lose a satellite and (laughs) an area distributor to another organization yeah what was the feeling around that and you know giving going from five offices back down to two again
1: yeah, you know, we had a couple people that oh, uh, we had a lady that we worked with extensively. Jalen again recruited her directly, and I mean, she was family, right? I mean, we were worked with her every day. We were on trips together. Everything. It was just, yeah, it was. They were they were family, and wh- whatever the details behind it don't necessarily matter. But I mean, they were pulled away by somebody else in the organization, and uh, yeah, it's when you put everything you got into people and you're with them every single day you care about them you care about their family you care about you know you know everything like you go to the weddings you go to the funerals you go to the birthday parties you know you're involved in it you're their family all the way through and you know when they and I think everybody's gone through some part of that in their life or somebody really close to them, important of them turns their back on them um happened and and it was uh it was tough. You know, it was, it was hard on Jay. I had to kind of be her rock in that time. So I, I focused on that role and, uh, but it's embarrassing. It is. And and I think they did it to make it embarrassing and just knew that for whatever reason, you know, God had a bigger plan. We were getting true to ourselves and what we wanted to accomplish. And for whatever reason, we weren't a fit for them and they weren't a fit for us and, and they moved on and it was, definitely the most painful thing we've gone through in rainbow without a doubt and uh you know they pulled away another office from us as well and it's uh it was a lot and it was almost a breaking point it was COVID had hit just after and uh you know a while after a year after whatever not even and yeah it was it was by that summer we were just about done Mm -hmm. you know it was just we had lost that ambition and everything and it just yeah it was it was definitely the the darkest time in our in our career for sure so how did you bounce back from that we went to work every day we just kept going and like we always do that's what you do right you just go you know you don't you can't let a bug you can't sit there and complain about it you just work through it and keep grinding and there's other people that are relying on you and you get gun shy right you're thinking man i mean you get bitter spend all this time with these people and they just Walk out on you like that and turn their back on you and, you know, running around kind of bashing you. And it's hard. So then you, you almost want to just give up on people in general. You mm-hmm. know, what are you, what are you, you know, why are you wasting your time? Yeah. Someone that close to you can turn on you. What are these other people going to do too? And, you know, you got to really pull yourself out of that negative mentality. And it's hard. But, you know, we went to work every day and, and, you know, we realized soon that, I mean, again, you know, this was, we weren't a fit for each other and these weren't our people. And it's easy to look back now on what we have now and realize that we wouldn't have what we had now if that. I've still been here. So it all works itself out for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: And now it's the famous March, 2020. <laughs> yes, Everybody knows what happens then.
1: Yeah. So I just opened up Kyle, um, Gina just opened up Brad and Alicia and yeah, COVID hits. Um, we had, we had just lost the other offices and Brad and Alicia get pulled away from us, you know, pretty much at the same time. And Kyle's just opens up and his deal falls down just like all of ours did and uh, yeah so you know what I mean we felt I I felt myself for sure and I know Jay at the time um, was where our leadership was questioned and not questioned but like tested to its max for sure I mean if everybody can pretty much go back and remember what COVID was like I mean trying to lead an organization through that is is stupid hard you're making decisions that you hope are the right decisions you're we're talking through people. What I knew is we had the product. You know, me and JD, we had the product. You know, other organizations chose to to step down and step aside. And we just said, hey, you know, for those, we're going to have free air purifiers in the middle of a pandemic. We have the greatest cleaning system in the world. We have the greatest, best air purification system on, on, on earth. We have the product for this time. If there's anything, any people that need to keep working, it's Rainbow. And we did. And we gave everybody the option. We didn't push anything. We, we did the whole thing in the beginning. We, we masked up and sanitized and we went in and we were only there if people were comfortable and we, we only went to personal leads and, you know, referrals and that kind of shit. And we only went where we were comfortable and we screened ourselves and screened our people. But, you know, we kept working mm-hmm. and we went all the way through. And while everybody else was told that they weren't essential, right, we were telling our people you're important and you're essential and you keep going. So those first few months were... Were definitely probably the most tense three months that i would had, you know, as, as a leader. And, and just, I mean, there was times we even questioned ourselves. Like, is, is this the right decision? Is this what we do? You know, it's it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy time in the world. And uh, we look back and we know that everything we did was, was right. And we trusted it to God and he led us through it too. So we were happy. But once we hit summer, we were done. Once it kind of got better and things started to go again you know, we, we were tapped out and why I think just with the emotions of the offices leaving before, and then just going through all that kind of stuff. I mean, you, we, we got our money we got our, you know what I mean? It's like, we, we, we could retire, we could stop, you know, I say like, we didn't, you weren't doing it for money anymore. The money is there. Like, you know, it wasn't what we were doing it for. Um, we were doing it for people. The people just left us, gave up on us. And now all the shit that's going on in the world. I mean, we're out at the lake, <laughs> we're hiding and we're fishing and just being together. And we were just like, screw it. It's not worth it. So then we were just sitting there just kind of, and that was really the probably the lowest point of, of our careers in just terms of just, you know, we, we couldn't promote Jalen wasn't getting promoted. Um, there was really no future in terms of that. You know, we were just kind of told like, you know, being a satellite distributor is a pretty good gig and it is. And you're battling between this, like, we don't want to be ungrateful for what we do have but at the same time as we felt like we deserved more. And it was just a, it was just a, a really weird time. Hmm. So.
0: And then Jalen gets a call. that changes everything. Yeah. What was that call about? So Sean Jones took
1: over as our ESD, and uh, he gives us a call one day and says, hey, I'm the new boss, basically the new sheriff in town, and he's in Vancouver on a quarantine. He's like, do you want to come see me? And we're like, okay, well, we can't fly or nothing. So, yeah, we drove 14 hours down to Vancouver, met with Sean. You know, he blew a bunch of smoke up our asses like these executive guys do. Right. And, uh, you know, but we connected with him really good. And, and I think what was really big is he pitched some pretty big ideas and, and, uh, I I think we believed him really was the biggest thing. And he kind of gave us this new vision and this new found passion. And I think Sean was really the one that really stirred us back up to get us going again. And he kind of did some, made some decisions along with Dave Spadey to, clear the region up and to put people where they belong and move people into certain areas that they belong. And really just, you know, I think Sean really just believed in what Jalene could do, especially, and, and me, if I hung around with her long enough and, you know, he just, he paved the way for us to really grow. And, uh, you know, just just this new thing with this partnership and the way we help our offices grow. And we really, he just gave us an idea on how to really help people and, he just brought that spark back into into our organization and it became about the people again. And we realized that everything we went through was for a reason and and it just gave us a newfound passion. We started our company, Revival United. And Revival United does about eleven million dollars a year in sales right now. And it's it's been an amazing thing.
0: Crazy. And that was like the new vision then, hey, was that, that was revival it. United yeah. starting that up and getting yeah. that company going. And that's what it started. It came out of that. Yeah. In the last 12 months, you guys have actually opened up four offices. Yeah. Yeah.
1: 12, 13, 14 months. Yeah. It's yeah. been a lot. I mean, and that was, you know, through this program and through this new vision and, and making it about people and just building the family that we have, we have this crazy group of people and, you know, I mean, we're and in it. And right? thank God I mean, some
0: of them came back. And that's it. Yeah.
1: And we got Brad and Alicia back and they kind of seen the ways and, you they came back to us and that's stronger than ever. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, yeah, we have uh, seven, eight offices that are just, seven, eight locations that are just out rocking it. And, and we go through all the same things together and it's, you know, people always say, oh, it's a family. Like we're truly a family. hundred oh, percent. And, I mean, everybody comes to everybody's shit. We all go, I mean, it's just, it's, we laugh together, we cry together, we fight together and it's just all, you know, I've never been a part of anything as strong as this. No, and I'm proud of it. And and I and I, you know, I love our team. I love our distributors, every single one of them, and just all of our people. And, you know, I just I don't know, we could have never imagined um, the people that we have, you just sit there. And a lot of times when you sit back and think it's like, oh, you get one good person or two good people. I mean, we can sit here all day and just write down all the amazing people that we have in this whole organization. And it's just, uh, all the shit that we went through to get to that point is, you know, is, is why we're here. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. You know, yeah. we wouldn't trade it for anything. So it's, it's worth it. All the, all the shit
0: 100%. is worth it. Yeah. What are your goals now? What's like the next step for you? Um, you know, I don't know.
1: It, I think, I think, you know, just to, I think to kind of solidify and, and tighten up some things that within, you know, Revival United and, and to keep our distributors strong, and help these guys get to satellite to their next level and then to you know again find that next wave of people that are going to open up and just to keep growing and to keep offering people the opportunity you know i love teaching you know i love you know love the podcast and the things that we got going on now and i think it's just you know the more we can do to teach people and um, probably look at getting a place in bc here soon and getting out of the cold a little bit more but it's nice we can do so much remotely now, and you know we have so many good people in so many good places. It's just we just want to keep growing and keep you know helping our our distributors grow to the same position we're in. We have some of our distributors that I mean we, we have two of them that you know closed off, and I mean we have a you know a distributor that made made a quarter million dollars in their first year savings, you know, kind paying off their business. And you know we've had distributors that have made uh, you know a hundred thousand dollars they put in savings in their first four or five months, and not even really working crushing it either you know what i'm saying so like you know we just want to get everybody i know julian has a goal of making all our distributors millionaires and there's a a, you know they're on the path to do it for sure and just want to keep developing more people and just keep this thing growing and if we can double in size of what we have now and just add more amazing people to this um it's it's gonna be awesome
0: yeah for sure what's like your advice for you know those who want to get from where you were to where you are you know like from heating your house with an oven to now base. I mean, I live your life. I'm with you every single day. And yeah. I mean, I have never seen anybody just buy whatever the hell they want at whatever time <laughs> does not matter. The price it's probably not a good trait to have, but uh, probably
1: not. But yeah, I know it gets being shit with you a little bit. Um, but it's like literally li- like living life truly on your own terms. I think that, I think the the big thing is just, you know, we're here to help. This podcast, you know, I started doing War Room to help our people because I've been through it, you know, and I mean, we touched on a lot today in this two and a half hours Um, there. It's and there's I mean, there's so much more. Right. But it's like, you know, we could sit here for days and days and days and tell stories and lessons. And I think the biggest thing is I just I want people to know that. I truly understand what it feels like, and I want to help people through it. I have a Jillian helped me through it. Rainbow pulled me through it. And all I want to do is repay that a thousand times over. Mm-hmm. I want to take people that were where I was and help get them to where we are. And that's it. And that's the, that's the goal. Like that's, that's what I want to do. So my advice is to shut up, like just shut up and listen, listen to the things that people teach, listen to the thing, work hard, like just get after it. This is a beautiful life. It's a beautiful business. It's a beautiful company. It's a beautiful machine, and it's just the, the opportunity is sitting here for anybody who wants to come and grab it. And it's just grab onto it and don't quit. Mm-hmm. Like just don't stop. Just go to work. And when you make ten thousand dollars, go make twelve the next month, and go make. You know, I never, I never had that mentality of like, oh, I'm going to make ten thousand bucks and take the month off. Like it was always just like, how do I make ten next month? Now how do I bump that to twelve? Now how do I crank that to fourteen? How do I get that to sixteen? How do I pump that to 20, you know? And that was always a mentality is how do I get more next month? Not okay. Now I'm good for the next month or two. Right. So, you know, you got to get out of that poverty mentality and get into that success mentality and fight for what you want.
0: Mm -hmm. If
1: you just made $10,000, why wouldn't you want to make 12 next month? Right. Right. Why do you want to make $10,000 and make 400 bucks the next month? Does not make any sense? So work hard at it, go for it. And, you know, there's a lot of good people in the world that are really here to truly help. And. Even if it doesn't make sense, sometimes there's a lot of things I learned that didn't make sense that clicked later on down the road. And all I want from from this podcast is for people. And that's why we took it beyond rainbow and, you know, to anybody who wants to to listen. You know, it is for what it is. You know, some people can't handle this. Some people don't connect to it. It is what it is. I don't care. Right. I'm not, you know, I'm just doing this for whoever the hell wants to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, in our following, in our group, it's like, we know what, You we know we've been there. We've been through it. You don't have to be in our business, but you can still get through it with the same principles. No matter what business you're in. And it's just, listen, work hard. Don't quit. Every single person successful will tell you not to quit. Just don't. Don't quit on yourself. Okay. The thing that we tell people all the time is like, this train's rolling. Right. You know that, Eric, you've seen people come, people go, nothing changes. Like my, I didn't quit on myself. My business is going to roll forever. My business is going to roll with or without anybody in it. Like, you know, whether you're in it or not in it, it's still going to roll. So people aren't doing this for us. They're not doing this for whatever. Like we we do our work. This is your opportunity to lose. Anybody who comes in, this is their opportunity to lose. This train's rolling. All you gotta do is jump on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you jump on and roll with it, you'll be rolling too. But it's, if you if you stay at this train station, this, the damn thing's rolling. As much as sometimes people, I think, want to think that when they leave, everything's going to crumble down. It ain't going to happen. I can tell you, when I leave, left Jalen Kaczynski's organization and she kept going, I, was a, I mean, I was happy, of course. But, like, I was just like, it doesn't matter. It, it actually really humbled me to see her blow it up the way she did still. You know, and again, I never doubted it, but it was just like, wow, like really, if I wasn't here, this would keep going. So it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. This is your opportunity. This is the opportunity for people jump on. Don't quit. And let's roll with this thing. And Eric, if you don't make money, we don't make money. Right. We're not going to tell you to do something. It's not going to make you make money because we're not going to make money. Right. Trust. 100%. And just don't quit. For sure.
0: Well, I think I speak for everybody listening to this podcast. We do, you know, really... Thank you for letting us share your story.
1: Yeah. Also it's been fun, man. I enjoy it. I think it's uh it's good. And I mean just just want people to understand that we know what it's like to to be down and out and you know, just let us help you get out of it.
0: And that's just the most important part is for everybody just to hear like and that's why I wanted to do this so bad too, is because, you know, I've I know i I've known some of it, but mm-hmm. I didn't even know all of it. Yeah. Right. And to the point where it's like now they can understand why you can relate to them in such a way. Yeah. Right. And that's like the thing is like there's some people out there um, that are, you know, professional speakers or motivational speakers. And they've been through some shit. Yeah. But some of them have been through worse. And that's why I think they're so much more powerful than others. Right. For sure. And so that's the thing I think that's really important. People hearing this. People want to know that people understand
1: them. And, And it's like I said, I mean, there's. There's textbook leaders out there. Mm-hmm. They're not leaders. No. You know. You can't take somebody and say, this is your leader. Right? <laughs> yeah. Now you can have a boss and you have to listen to that boss, but it doesn't mean you have to respect that boss. hundred percent. Right? So I think when people, you know, we talk about that a lot in the episodes is when people know you've gone through it and you, and they actually know that you, like when you can actually feel, you know, you remember what it feels like when people come to me and talk to me about their problems, I remember what that feels like. So I can relate to it. Julian can relate to it. Mm-hmm. And when a leader can relate to what you're going through and you can share those stories that you were there too, then you also become that that visionary for them because now they say, wow, you were here and now look where you are. And you're also that inspiration to keep going. You're the example to not quit. And that's just not us. That's just people in 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 business and in any leadership role that are true leaders. When they were where you were and they overcame it, you give the people who are where they are now the inspiration to overcome it. You, they believe they can do it because you did it. And when you can actually understand how they're feeling, it's powerful, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's why we're able to help as many people and connect to many people as we do, because again, we're not, you know, silver spoon kids, right? Mm -hmm. This wasn't given to us or handed to us. We, we didn't come from rich families. We didn't come from successful families. We came from near poverty type mentalities and, and, and broke and betting paycheck to paycheck to living off the land to basically, you know self-made right so it's when people see that i think they respect that a lot more than just somebody who got their inherited their money from their dad mm-hmm. or mom or 100%. something like that right so it's uh it was good and i mean we probably should have done this maybe 10 episodes ago but uh, at least we got it out there and yeah hopefully some people at least you know connect and understand that we're here to help and uh, we know what it feels like
0: so. mm-hmm. well thanks again Dell. Mm. that's Dell's story and that's episode 12